containment breach. We've had a major containment breach. Uh, oh my God. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Stand. It's dark, work ahead, dark and bloody. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. Is this a dream? Mayhap it is, mayhap it ain't. <laughs> Hosted by Arnie. Man has a way of hearing things, seeing things. Stuart. I dreamed about you. I know you did. And Jacob. These men who have to go into the wilderness. This is God's will. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. We have to find out, and soon we will. Listener discretion is advised. Help us to be true, dear Lord. Help us to stay. Today we're discussing The Stand, starring Gary Sinise, Molly Ringwald, Jamie Sheridan, Laura Sangiacomo, Ruby D, Ozzy Davis, Miguel Ferrer, Corin Nemec, Matt Frewer, Adam Stroke, Ray Walston, Rob Lowe, Peter Van Norden, Bridget Ryan, Kelly Overby, Bill Fabergeki, Rick Aviles, Shawnee Smith, Chuck Adamson, Sam Anderson, Cynthia Garris, Billy L. Sullivan, Warren Frost, Tom Holland, Stephen King, Shara Shaw, Dan Martin, Max Wright, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> There's got to be a story on that one. <laughs> There's over a hundred speaking actors in this movie. Directed by Mick Garris. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. M-O-O-N. That spells co-host of Now Playing. <laughs> I knew you were going to go with that, Stuart, in L.A. I'm going to get someone to take their shirt off tonight. It's okay. I'm a podcaster. This is Jacob. <laughs> so many questions about that doctor. Insignificant role. <laughs> I got questions about him, though. Yeah, there's. I'm sure you have a lot of questions as the Stephen King newbie, Jacob. Oh, so many. <laughs> but I am giddy. I mean, this week... On Now Playing, we're talking about The Stand. When we started Now Playing, doing Friday the 13th and Star Trek, I figured we would never get to any television stuff at all, let alone Stephen King's four-night, eight-hour epic The Stand. But we're going to talk about that tonight, and then I'm also doing Books and Nachos on The Stand this week. I've been living it. There are three versions of that book. I've been reading nothing but The Stand for about six months. I am so excited to talk about one of my favorite Stephen King books, what is considered the best Stephen King book. Yeah, and I'm trying to keep up with you. I'm not quite as enthused as you, but I did listen to the book on audio disc. I had never read it before, but this past summer, I took me a couple weeks, but I did get through it. And I did see this miniseries when it originally aired in Sweeps 1994. I had distant memories. I remembered certain things, but I couldn't have told you all of the character arcs or how it even resulted. Impressions here and there. Was I a fan? I liked some of it. 
There was some of it that left a bad taste in my mouth. But yeah, I mean, The Stand, if we're going to cover any Stephen King, I would say The Stand is up there in the canon as being some of his most admired writing. Yeah, and I'm the newbie here, but I know this is like, this is his epic. For our silver and platinum donors, when we talked about Lord of the Rings, Arnie, I think you said this is Stephen King's Lord of the Rings. So I, I feel like we've reversed places. I haven't read the book. I don't want to read the book. I want to go in, watch this as just someone that would watch it on TV. I am going to listen to your books and nachos, though, because I have so many questions after seeing this. Well, surprisingly, despite this being considered by King fans his best book, I had not read it when this aired in 1994. I was a King fan, but this book cover, I didn't grasp the entire concept. Then this aired on ABC. I was there watching it live on television in my friend's dorm room, and it aired Sunday and Monday. It took Tuesday off because nobody messes with Roseanne Barr. (laughs) Was that the competition on Tuesdays back then? I kid you not. Roseanne was number one show, and you did not disrupt Roseanne. I don't doubt it. I was probably watching Roseanne rather than The Stand. And then on Wednesday and Thursday, it came back. And so during that day off, it was coming near my college finals. Instead of studying, I actually went out to the boat docks near my college campus and sat by the river and read the entire book, The Stand, for the first time. Unabridged version. It was a long day at the boat dock. And then went back and finished watching it. I've reread that book twice for fun and then again this year for Books and Nachos. And I've rewatched The Stand at least every five years. I don't know. What would that make this? My eighth watching of this miniseries? Oh, my God. Really? Every five years, The Stand, huh? It's so long that I don't do it more often. It's an endeavor when I do it. And every time I do it, it's a marathon. When I watched it this time, I sat down at noon on a Sunday, pressed play between each episode, restroom break, get a drink, finished it around 7 p.m. I took the weekend to watch it. I watched it in a couple days. First two episodes Saturday, the second on Sunday. Took breaks in between, yeah. Yeah, I felt for this time, it's just wise to break it up. I did the first two on their own individual nights, and then the last two is a big push, one long day. Well, Arnie, if you read the book, you do the plot. I don't envy you. Try to tell us what happens in four nights of ABC television in a as brief a manner as possible. Give us the stand. A superflu is spread across the country and maybe the world, wiping out 99% of the population. We witnessed the release of this deadly virus from a military base via gate guard Campion. When the warning sirens go off, Campion decides to desert his post, grab his wife, daughter, and flee, unaware that by doing so, he's damning humanity to death. For the first night of the miniseries, we watch the country crumble through the viewpoints of several main characters, all of whom are mysteriously immune to the disease. On the good side, we have Texan Stu Redmond, played by Gary Sinise, who's taken by the government to Vermont for study. In Maine, we meet Franny Goldsmith, played by Molly Ringwald, a single woman who's pregnant. In New York, we have Larry Underwood, played by Adam Stork, a one-hit wonder rocker who owes some bookies some dough. And then we meet Nick Ambrose, played by Rob Lowe, a deaf mute who's had a run-in with some townies. Not only are all four of these characters healthy while everyone around them suffers a phlegm-filled demise, but they also have dreams of a very old black woman, Mother Abigail, played by Ruby D, who tells them to come see her in Hemingford Home, Nebraska. Sexy! <laughs> like King is just reading my subconscious. (laughs) On their journey, the heroes pick up some additional characters. Franny has in tow Harold Lauder, played by Corin Nemec, a young writer who has a crush on the redhead. Stu encounters oldster sociologist Glenn Bateman, played by my favorite Martian, Ray Walston. 
Larry encounters Nadine Cross, an unstable virgin played by Laura San Giacomo, who actually ditches Larry before reaching Boulder, and Nick runs into mentally handicapped Tom Cullen, played by coaches Bill Fagerbacky, whose name I will never pronounce correctly. I'm sorry, <laughs> Bill. The two are then picked up by Ralph Bretner, played by Peter Van Norton, and you don't know that actor, you don't know Ralph, he's important for reasons that I really, we'll talk about it, but I don't get it. And we're also introduced to some characters on the side of evil. Leading the charge is Randall Flagg, played by Jamie Sheridan, a mysterious man who loves to dress in denim. He's some form of demon, he's able to change shapes and take the form of crows and other creatures, and he recruits to work with him Lloyd Henry, played by Miguel Ferrer, a stick-up man who Randall saves from starving to death in an abandoned prison. Then there's the Trash Can Man, a pyromaniac and idiot savant when it comes to weapons, played by erstwhile Max Headroom Matt Frewer. The side of good meets in Boulder, Colorado, and the bad folks head to Sin City, Las Vegas. In the end, hundreds or maybe thousands is what they're intending, but they just can't afford it, of people congregate in each town and both towns set to rebuilding society. In Boulder, a committee is formed of seven people, including Stu, Franny, Larry, Glenn, Nick, that Ralph again, and a woman who I care even less about than Ralph named Susan Stern, who came out of nowhere and I don't even care enough about her to name the actress. The director's wife. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I love you enough to give you this bit part, but you're not getting a lead. But she's in charge of Boulder. Yet the people still look to Mother Abigail, who warns her people about Flag in Vegas, claiming she's spoken to God himself. Yet she leaves the people in town to their own devices when she feels she's sinned with pride and wanders out on her own. With the baseless fear fed by Mother Abigail's religious fervor, that Flag is planning to attack Boulder, three spies are sent to Las Vegas, including mentally handicapped Tom Cullen. Two of the spies are killed, but Tom escapes. But really, he doesn't do anybody any good with what little information he gathered as the real drama went down in Boulder. Nadine returned and tried to hook up with Larry, but the musician has married Lucy Swan and co-adopted Joe, a feral boy Lucy found on the way to Boulder. It turns out Nadine is destined to be the bride of Flag and birth his heir. She's been psychically communicating with the demon, and he sets her to seduce, though not have vaginal intercourse, with Harold Lauder, who holds a grudge against the people of Boulder as his heart's desire Franny has taken up with Stu. Harold sets a bomb in the house where the Boulder committee meets, but a psychic flash from Mother Abigail allows most people to escape, but Nick is killed in the blast. And so is Sue Stern, but really, who cares about her? With that done, Nadine and Harold set off for Vegas, but a vision of Flag has Harold crash along the way, and Nadine leaves him to blow his own head off while Nadine goes to be the demon baby mama. But after the blast, Mother Abigail, frail and dying, returns to Boulder and says the surviving men of the committee, Stu, Glenn, Larry, and Ralph, must walk to Las Vegas. Which, I looked this up on Google Maps. Walking directions, in fact. 813 miles at 269 hours of walking. <laughs> Along the way, Stu falls down a ravine and breaks his leg, and despite Larry's objections, the other three men continue on to Vegas, where they're captured by Flag's henchmen. But things aren't going too well for Flag. Trashcan Man went even more insane and blew up the bombers he was trying to arm. Nadine, pregnant, threw herself off Flag's balcony, killing herself and Flag's unborn child. And Flag is just throwing temper tantrums and his men are deserting him to go to Brazil. So to restore faith, Flag plans to have these three men drawn and quartered, though Glenn is shot beforehand for laughing at Flag. In the ceremony to kill Larry and Ralph, Trashcan Man shows up. He's brought a gift to apologize to Flag for blowing up the planes. 
That gift is a nuclear bomb that's leaking radiation. Flag tries to get rid of it, but the hand of God materializes. We will talk about that as well. It detonates the nuke, killing all the people in Vegas, including Larry and Ralph. Though Flag may have escaped, we see him turn into a crow seconds before the explosion. From a distance, Stu has a good vantage point to watch the nuke, and then he's found by Tom Cullen, who's returning back from his spy mission. The two trek to Boulder, a journey that lasts well into the winter. And when they arrive, Stu finds out Franny had her baby, but it seems to be dying of the super flu. He goes to Franny, and then the doctors tell him that that was a needless plot twist, as the baby's now fine, and humanity may yet survive this horrible plague as credits roll. Oh, shoot, I set my VCR for AM instead of PM. Can you go through that again? I missed some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> a lot to talk about. Yeah, did not read Stephen King's The Stand when I was in my big Stephen King phase in the late 80s, early 90s, partly because it looked so long, but I always wanted to because I love disease pandemic stories. And that was all that I knew about The Stand, was it was about a virus that wipes out the world. Captain Trips. I kind of knew it was post-apocalypse, something wipes out most of humanity. I'm shocked how little of the story that actually is. We'll get it in the first night here, I guess. I don't get the Captain Trips thing. I, I guess that's probably expanded more in the book. I heard that reference a few times. It took me a bit to catch on that that's what they were calling the super flu. Yeah, that pandemic situation. I hadn't really seen stories like that when this miniseries came out in 94. I know there were some out there. This wasn't the first. King didn't originate this. and But I had not been exposed to that kind of fiction. And growing up, my fear was the nuke killing us all. The thought of chemical warfare, germ warfare, creating a virus, and the fact that there are doctors out there creating viruses just so that they can create cures. And Right now, this is really freaking me yes. out. I've been reading The Stand for six months, and then Ebola? Oh my god, you have no idea how I'm freaking out about Ebola. I just went to Manhattan. There were people on the subway in masks and things, and I was thinking I need, like, the hazmat suit that Max Wright wears in this thing. <laughs> well, yes, uh, New York is not a clean place. One could hardly blame you if you wore that every day. But, <laughs> you know, diseases are all the time now. I mean, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, we had a wipeout from disease. It was a common trope. I think the apocalypse, we've kind of gotten comfortable with it. So many movies have destroyed humanity since The Stand. We can forget how original this would seem in 1994 on network television, no less. Yeah, the first night watching everyone get wiped out. I've never forgotten the opening of this. Set to Blue Oyster Cults, Don't Fear the Reaper, <laughs> with all these scientists just dropped I mean, people being dropped where they stood in their office cubicle, like on the phone, in the middle of their lunch, walking down the hall. I mean, when this thing starts out, it's lethal within five minutes. Yeah, at an army base, I found it very interesting because when this started, I didn't get into classic rock as a kid. I got into classic rock in my college years. I'd only just heard Don't Fear the Reaper less than a year before this aired. And so to me, that was a new song. <laughs> and so that they played it here and it was all about embracing death it weirded me out in those eerie guitar strings i never knew until i was reading the book at the boat dock king actually quoted don't fear the reaper on the opening page of the book that was always his vision that was his soundtrack he just played that song over and over again while writing this book this entire book is his version of don't fear the reaper so that they got the rights absolutely perfect for this I do like that moment when that song kicks in. 
My question is, though, this flu, it gets out because a guard didn't close a chain link fence? Well, <laughs> lest I remind you, this is a TV budget. Now, admittedly, a big one. I think they had about, what, $30 million to play with here? But $30 million in 1994, while extravagant for a TV miniseries, is not enough probably to do this book justice the way that readers might have envisioned. I certainly felt like instantly it is apparent that the complex meant to house Captain Trips is largely insufficient to do so. And that although we are to blame Charlie Campion for grabbing his family and leaving the gate open, that chain link fence and some barbed wire was not going to keep a disease in. Well, now, the key being, theoretically, I mean, he's an outside guard, but I think the theory is, if he hadn't gotten away, it would have at least been kept here. It wasn't airborne outside there too far. It was mostly people in the compound who died. Okay, see, I took it as it was just going to sweep through whether this guard took off with his family or not. Eventually, it would spread. That's how I took this. I mean, we'll see as it we go to different locations. You know, he ends up in Texas. He's going to spread it there, but it spread all over California, all over at least North America. I never get the sense if this went worldwide, but definitely has wiped out the United States. So I always figured it was just a creeping death, uh, throwing a Metallica reference. If you're not down with Don't Fear the Reaper for you. A few things on this. First of all, I don't know if I believe this, but according to Mick Garris, this movie was actually written before Stephen King's unabridged version of The Stand was published. So this is actually based on the abridged version, and the only real scene from the unabridged version that's here is Campion's Escape. When the first book, the book that people knew up until 1990, 1991, just started with Campion crashing in Texas. And you know what? I think that's a better beginning. Now, granted, sure, Romero's Dawn of the Dead had done it, but we didn't have things like 28 Days Later or The Walking Dead television show where you skip the outbreak. You you wake up with your central character. They wake up in a hospital or, or whatnot, and they see all the destruction around them. I feel like that's the modern way to go. Skip all this. I, I'm going to just say it. This whole first episode feels like filler. We're going to get into the characters. It's going to give us our main characters, but so much of the spreading of the disease, I feel like that's an old-fashioned thing to show that happening. Show me the aftermath. I feel that's much scarier. No, no, no. This is my favorite episode of the four, is this one, with the disease spreading. And again, in the book, King does it almost biblically he traces it as a person goes to a mcdonald's and gives it to the worker there and another person goes on an airplane he keeps this an american story he's an american writer he never clarifies whether it went overseas it would make sense that it did but this episode is the disease spreads and every time you see someone sneeze you know that now they're terminal this is what sucked me into the stand this is my favorite part of the stand the book it's my favorite part of the Stand the miniseries. Whether or not I recommend the Stand as a miniseries, I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend this first night as we're introduced to these characters in these disparate situations. It could almost be an anthology series about different people just dealing with a plague in their area and all the people around them dying while they stay healthy. I'm going to second that. I do think that this is, when you think of Stephen King, you want a horror story. This is the horrific chapter. To me, you know, I almost put it on the level of a disaster movie. You know, it was very trendy at the time that The Stand was written to have these movies where, you know, George Kennedy and Zsa Zsa Gabor and Jimmy Walker and all these has-been stars would get in an airplane and it would crash or something like that. And you would just get sucked up on who lives, who dies. 
That's kind of how this feels like. I mean, this cast, the people that we're going to meet here, largely feel like has-beens and leftovers of the Brat Pack and what have you. But the fun really is who's going to live, who's going to die, and what's going to happen. Once we get past the first two nights and see the survivors rebuilding, it's a different thing entirely. And I think it's a harder trick to pull. But the scariness, the fear, is watching the apocalypse. And see, I didn't get that fear because every person introduced I recognize. You know, Gary Sneeze. I'm like, okay, he's going to be a major character. His name's in the credits. Molly Ringwald. Parker Lewis. I didn't know Parker Lewis did anything but Parker Lewis. <laughs> but he shows up. Keep in mind, this was my introduction and I think America's introduction to Gary Sinise. He wasn't Lieutenant Dan at this point. <laughs> That's true. He uh, had been largely doing stage work in Chicago with John Malkovich. They had done a Of Mice and Men adaptation that had gotten some notoriety, some critical audits. But yeah, the average guy didn't know who this guy was. To make him the star was probably a bold move. It was. You know, they did a lot of bold casting here. We'll talk through it. Some paid off, some didn't. Gary Sinise, when I first saw him here, I knew this man would be a star, though. I mean, this was one of those roles where he just pulled me in. I'm like watching this. I'm a child of the 80s. I'm like, why isn't Rob Lowe the star of this? And who pulled Molly Ringwald out from Mothballs? <laughs> but Gary Sinise, who is this guy? This guy is absolutely perfect to play Stu the Texan, who in the book he worked at a calculator factory and is just hanging out at a gas station with some friends drinking some beers when Campion rolls in. He is clearly the best one in the cast. And I'm not going to knock everyone else in the cast, but I can literally say there is nobody else in the 99 other speaking roles of this movie <laughs> that holds a candle to what Gary Sinise does in this movie. He's the dramatic core. I wish they used more of him. I mean, I think when you're looking at a adapting something as epic as The Stand, you think about consolidating characters. I think that they should have taken some of the action and given him more to do here. But the fact that we meet him first lets me know that they know he's the one we pay attention to most. He's going to be the leader, right? When all is said and done, he's the leader of the remaining human society after everyone falls. He's the first one not to get sick when Charlie has been driving from California all the way to East Texas, infecting everyone. This is the first guy not to die. Yeah, and not to break away from that, but you say consolidating characters. I think it's really important at this point to point out. Stephen King wrote the screenplay. <laughs> yeah, nothing's getting consolidated. Nothing's getting cut. That's the feeling I have, not having read the book. No, tons gets cut. Absolutely okay. tons. I'll talk about when we get there. But King wrote this because The Stand was, again, people loved it so much. He'd written books for 15 more years. He'd go to speaking appearances and people would say, when are you going to write another book like The Stand? And he'd slump his shoulders because it has nothing else he's written lived up. So when they were going to do this, this had been a development hell for all of the 80s. They tried to make some movies with it. They decided to make a TV movie. He abridged the hell out of even the abridged version. But then he brought in his pet director, Mick Garris. Yes, who hadn't made the Shining TV miniseries yet, but they would. <laughs> this would be born of the success of The Stand. But they had done an original Stephen screenplay called Sleepwalkers that we'll get to probably in a couple years. It's very funny that we're going through McGarris's cinematography here almost in reverse. I guess that when all is said and done, Critters 2, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's where he started. Psycho 4, we've covered. Yeah, we know Mick here, and uh, not a fan, but he definitely is in good with King, and with him at the helm, you know that he's going to honor 
what King wishes to happen in a screenplay. He's not going to rewrite King. Right. So when you talk about consolidating characters, not only is this King's story that he wants to be faithful to, and he feels a real kinship with these characters, he also feels a loyalty to his fans to not take away their favorite characters. So when you start talking about Stu and Nick and all these characters who maybe could have been consolidated, because I'm going to argue Stu is kind of a useless character. I like him. I like what Sinise does. But what does Stu do in the story? I don't think it's all that much. But you're not going to take Stu out of the story. You're not going to send him to Vegas to die at the end. Right. We're going to honor the book, and that's fine. I'm going to look at this as an adaptation of the book and not really its own beast, which I'll go ahead and say... I don't think The Stand is Stephen King's best story, or rather, there are things I would like to see happen in it that never occur on the page. So, whatever my disappointments are with the narrative, they rest with King's source material, and I'm not going to ding this movie for that. I'll ding the movie where I ding the movie, I'll ding the book where I ding the book. The movie does change stuff from the book, it changes some stuff for the better, and if it doesn't change something that could have been improved, well, that fault lies in the screenwriting. So, yeah, it is what it is. But Stu here in Texas, he's kind of our follow-through of the story into the government side of this. I mean, we saw Campion leave, but it's Stu who gets taken to the disease control center in Vermont, gets experimented on, and in the background through all of this, Ed Harris? Yeah, I didn't think it was actually Ed Harris. I'm like, oh, they found Ed Harris's cheaper twin. This can't be actually Ed Harris. It was. He was working on Stephen King's Needful Things around the same time. It was theatrically released in 93. I gotta think that somebody reached out and called in a favor. <laughs> yeah, there are cameos throughout this, including King himself here. I do feel like there are people that have been participants in previous King works that came back just to give a fist pump to the man and... Kathy Bates, of course. And to acknowledge that their career came out of working with King. Kathy Bates' career didn't come out of working with King, but she got her Oscar from working with King. Well, her movie career belongs to Misery. Yes, her stage work, if you want to go back to that. And Ed <laughs> Harris was in Creepshow as well. Oh, that's right. That is true. He did do Creepshow. He was a good friend of Romero's. He even did Night Riders. So, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's why he ended up doing needful things as well. But I think it's good that they bring these big screen actors down to the small screen for this. It does give this movie a feel that it's almost bigger than television, but yet still not budgeted for big screens. What Ed Harris is here to remind you is that Stephen King hates authority. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> the government's response is horrible in all cases. Yes. They believe that this small town in Texas is infected, so the response is to send in military troops and order people at gunpoint. Did it have to be this extreme? I recognize you need a armed police force to make sure that quarantine is obeyed, right? I mean, we all can agree that these people need to be in quarantine. It's not barbaric that they're put there, but Ed Harris sells us on the fact that they're going to do it harshly. They're going to laugh at the people as they cough themselves to death. They're going to kill news crews that try to report this. I mean, it reinforces that 70s notion that the people in power do not have our interests at heart. You know what really struck me was the scientists at the Vermont Disease Control Center. They're almost like mad scientists when they get Stu and the other people from Texas in there. I, I don't know. They don't seem like they really want to cure this. They're just like playing with them like they're rats in a maze or something. You mean Willie from ALF and Lex <laughs> Luthor from Superboy? <laughs> Was that Willie? 
Yes. I'm glad I'm not the only one who knows him only as Lex Luthor from Superboy. But anytime I see Sherman Howard, that's all I see. As for poor Max Wright, I'm not going to get into it. Just Google Max Wright homeless crack and find where his life has gone. But it's smoking crack with homeless people. Yeah, it's, yes. (laughs) Tragic end to a uh, comedic star of a sitcom that I enjoyed much. (laughs) Which is worse, crack with homeless people or Alf eating the cat? (laughs) I don't know, but uh, it is pretty bad how they treat Stu here. You say Stu has no purpose. I see in the way that they interact with him that his purpose is to be the common man. What ultimately happens is, well, everyone is going to die, including the scientists, and Lex Luthor, Dietz is the character's name, wants to take Stu out for basically being chosen. The way he sees it, Stu is a chicken-fried piece of crap that does not deserve to live when so many educated, intelligent, notable people like himself are falling by the wayside. But that's the point, I think, is that Stu, there's nothing special about Stu. He doesn't live because he's chosen by God or that he has a destiny that's obvious to bringing mankind to the next step. He's just an average Joe that's thrust into an impossible situation. And that's why he's our hero. Well, as is almost every single main character in this story. I don't know that that's true. I feel like there's a lot of novelty in the rest of this cast. And I feel like a lot of the other people are there working a quirk, if you will. Yeah, nerd, pop singer, retard, deaf mute. Okay, but when we get into some of, like, the further down characters, when we start talking about Ralph, for example. I don't know why Ralph is in this. (laughs) Yeah, talking about consolidating characters. Hello, Ralph. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, Ralph and Stu... I mean, yes, the others have a quirk, but there's a lot of everyman in the Survivor cast. King always writes about the everyman. And Stu, yeah, he's likable, he's affable. I took it as the reason he wanted to kill him wasn't just because he was Southern Fried, but because he had confounded science's every attempt to diagnose this disease. They couldn't find anything about him no antibody, nothing in his makeup that would make him resistant to this disease. And I think it just the scientists had gotten ill despite their spacesuits, which I thought looked comical and turns out actually were legitimate suits. Yeah, if you've seen people dealing with Ebola patients, that's what they're wearing. I didn't think it was quite so puffy. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I thought they were going to dance around with Intel chips. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was a couple years earlier, but later on, they do play a disco song. And uh, Boogie Fever, and I was thinking of the Intel Bunny ads. But yeah, I just took it as they were mad that Stu defied their ability to science. You know, this movie's a lot about faith. These two characters, their faith is science, and their faith is broken as they die of this disease that science should have been able to cure, protect, inoculate them from. Yeah, I think that could have been sold better. They come off as so maniacal. I wish they played it more serious. I don't know if Willie Tanner could play a serious role, but I wish they would have done that. I could have bought into that dilemma more. Well, I do think King wants to make sure we understand that mankind is somewhat at fault with this. I mean, after all, this disease is man-made. A man did leave that gate open. The people in power did respond with brute force and in many ways helped increase the fear that keeps the spread going. I think King, you know, there'll be a supernatural cause for the evil as well, but I think King would hate for you to walk away feeling like we were all just victims. He wants to show human bad guys, and in this first segment with the plague, we really see the worst of them. And yet, for myself, not having read the book, this is where I get confused. Arnie, you were upset with the prestige that it went from magic to sci-fi, 
I feel the opposite here. Okay, you're selling me on this man-made disease, but then when we get into the rest of the story, now it's about God and the devil. So is the devil wiping out people? Is it God setting a plague like he did to the Egyptians to wipe out people? Is this man-made? I feel like there's not a clear cut line here. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of spirituality here. There's a lot of ideas that went into this, but a lot of it is King railing against technology, be the technology, nuclear bombs. I mean, keep in mind when King grew up, Vietnam War, nukes, all that. He was a big anti-war protester on campus. But technology in the form of disease, technology in the form of electricity, all of that. And what I took it as is that God didn't set loose this disease, but it set the stage for an epic battle between God and Randall Flagg, who we'll get to in a bit, in this case. But it starts here with science and this disease that science can't stop. I mean, there's something about it that is so virulent that it's going to kill everyone. In the book, I think they say it's something like 99% of the population, but that still leaves 1% of the population to go on. And in addition to Stu, we get Franny, Molly Ringwald, a person who I had honestly not thought about for a good five years when this aired, maybe more. Yeah, she really did disappear with Pretty in Pink. I mean, she made other movies. She made an attempt. She was supposed to be in Blue Velvet, and Silly Girl turned it down. But, uh, yeah, she was a huge star very quickly and then disappeared. So, yeah, she's perfect for this because she's willing to work for cheap, but she's an icon to many that we want to see her. I remember that being an exciting thing, you know, and she's going to be a serious dramatic actress. You know that because she dyes her red hair black. Yes. That's what I notice is the red hair is gone. And I missed that. I don't think she was ever a natural redhead. If so, she'd maybe have gone gray by this point because she's still dark haired today. She's singing jazz in New York. I could have gone and seen her. I chose not to spend that hundred dollars. <laughs> Wise choice. <laughs> Why would you do that when she sings here? I mean, she's always cracking a tune. Amazing Grace or the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> yeah, Franny, obviously part of her role here is to literally carry on the human race. She is pregnant. We don't know that in the first hour, but we eventually find out, I think by night three, she lets loose the fact that her old boyfriend, one that we never meet, but was bad to her and that she broke up with and is dead from plague, impregnated her. And now she is going to give birth to the first human post-Captain Trips. Yeah, there's a lot more of that in the book. I was kind of surprised that they didn't introduce it in the first night. It was a big thing of Franny's pre-plague life, dealing with both her parents and the fact that she was pregnant and her boyfriend was a jerk. Here, she never brings it up to her dad. Her mother is already dead. And I'm like, did they write it out? Are they going to try to make it a little cleaner that Stu might be the father? Because those two eventually get together. Maybe for American Network ABC Disney-owned <laughs> audiences, it would be better if Stu was the dad. I had to do the math because, they, yeah, they said she was going to give birth in January. I went back. I'm like, okay, can't be... Stu, they just met. I thought maybe Harold, maybe when they were traveling together, they hooked up. <laughs> now, it still would have been a July romance. Now, Harold is interesting because if I were going to pick a role that was the representative of King in this, that Stephen King actually writes a character that is himself into this. And yeah, he'll appear in this cast as a character. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying someone whose persona is very King, the nerd that was picked on by bullies at high school. I would think it would be Corin Nimick's character here, Harold. We're supposed to have sympathy for him, right? Because he writes poems for Molly Ringwald and she just doesn't like him. And the poem he reads here, 
is actually the first poem King ever had published. That is King's own poem. Oh, that's perfect. So I'm right then. Yeah. King is seeing a lot of himself, the awkward self, in this nerd that wants to... He's like, I win the lottery. When everyone drops dead except the girl I love, he (laughs) thinks this is perfect. It's even closer in the book because in the book, he's overweight. King's always struggled with a bit of a weight problem himself. I mean, it really felt like King was writing himself and King said in the commentary of this movie... He just thought about himself in early high school, and that's how he wrote Harold. But instead of getting someone who looks anything like Stephen King, you get Parker Lewis. Now, Parker Lewis Can't Lose was still on the air, dying, but still on the air when this aired. I was excited to see Corin Nemec in something else. He was actually a reason for me to tune in. He's terrible in this. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I actually like Parker Lewis. I watched it on Netflix a few years ago. I think it still holds up, but yeah. Play the cool dude. Don't play the nerd. You can't do it. And those horribly painted on zits don't do you any favors. It doesn't sell this nerd persona he's trying to do. And in the commentary, they said they even tried to make him slightly chubbier by patting his ass and putting an inflatable (laughs) ass. I did not notice his ass getting smaller in the movie. I didn't look at his ass at all in this film. (laughs) The zits go away. And I remember in the book, they give some lip service to the idea that Now that sugar foods aren't available to him, it makes his zits go away. He becomes leaner because, yeah, he's not eating the junk food he used to. Better skin. He becomes a greaser. That's how you know this guy's going to go bad. (laughs) They tip their hat way too soon. If you're in a Stephen King book and you put on a leather jacket, ride a hog, and slick your hair back, I have no choice but to believe that you're going to turn evil. Sometimes they come back. Right. So... (laughs) I think that they could have played with this more. I think that if Corin Nimick were a more subtler actor, or if this were written in a way for more of a character arc, we might see this character waffling between being good and evil. But to me, it's pretty obvious early on who the good people are and the bad people are. And once Corin puts on that motorcycle jacket, any hope I'd have for him winning the girl and proving his worth, you know, this is not going to be a Revenge of the Nerds story. This is going to be a Carrie Part 2 story. Yeah, and again, it's played far more subtly in the book. In the book, it feels like, really, the entire destiny hinges on him, and he could have gone either way. In the way that Corin Nemec plays it, oh my god, he's as evil as Mansquito, who he also played. <laughs> And that's what kills a lot of the mystery for me in this first episode is once I realize Stu is immune, I get, okay, every character you're showing me now is going to be immune. And yes, most of them I figure if they're going to go good or bad. There's a few that fooled me. Like uh, Larry? Yeah, Larry, the pop singer. He just got the number one VH1 hit and the world goes corrupt. That is a booby prize if ever I heard of one. No one liked VH1. That was for your parents. Yes. This was before VH1 was a clone of MTV. This is when it was all just adult contemporary. No, no, no. This is when VH1 was actually the music channel. MTV had pretty much gone to the real world and various reality shows. VH1 is where you had your music, and it was only a couple years away from pop-up videos, and basically all my music was consumed through VH1 in the mid-90s. So that I can go with. I love the thought that he had this hit, Baby Can You Dig Your Man?, that various people are singing because it was the, like the last new song when the plague <laughs> hit and the apocalypse came, making me really wonder right now that if the plague hit us, 
would we all be singing Taylor Swift's Shake It Off for the rest of eternity? Yeah, I mean, it's funny to bring a character in like this. Someone that whose tiny moment of fame is just eclipsing at this moment. It makes him seem more important than he actually is. Baby Can You Dig Your Man is a horrible, yes. horrible <laughs> song. Number 21 with a bullet? No, never. You shoot it with a bullet. Oh, by the way, Stephen King wrote it. Yeah, there's no way that this could ever chart. I mean, it was written, I should point out, the book was written in the 70s when we did have more of that kind of style of, like, maybe a Steely Dan song or something could pull that off. But yeah, by the 94, when everything is New Jack and shiny pop, uh, grunge, no. Baby Can You Dig Your Man has no prayer of charting in any chart that human beings are listening to. And Larry, I think he's the one that I'm not sure which way he's going to go because he's on the run from Lone Sharks. Like, he's got this song, he's waiting for it to hit, but he's hiding out in his hometown of New York so he doesn't get his legs broken. He's kind of a shifty character. I mean, he's hanging out in arcades with the rap man who's going to come back. I don't know what a rap man is. and Can't be good, though. <laughs> no. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is going to verbally assault him. Yeah, I mean, he is my favorite character in the book. Here, I don't think he's played as well. But I do like him a lot more because he has choices to make. He's coming from a bad situation. He's getting in fights with his mother. He's a New York guy. He's got a really bad actress girlfriend back on the coast. I don't know if she even had seen her lines before she's reading them off screen there. <laughs> but there's a lot going on with him that makes him really interesting to me. That said, I think that part of the reason I don't like him so much on screen is this actor. Adam Stork. I guess he's worked thanks to IMDb. I remember him from nothing. And here, he gives me nothing. Everything I bring to this character, I bring from the book. And for me, this is the one character that I guess has an arc, more or less. At least for the good guys. Harold has an arc. He goes bad. But this is the one I gravitate the most just because he goes through the biggest change because he starts out as such a shifty character. The actor doesn't do much. I mean, I don't know if any of these actors do much besides Gary Sinise. Some have some funny roles, not because they're well acted, but because of the material they got to work with. But yeah, this is a bland actor. Yeah, I, I mean, I think part of why we may not be on his side is because he wasn't in some kind of wonderful or something, you know, like he doesn't have 80s Brat Pack credentials like Rob Lowe or Molly Ringwald. <laughs> But he's no worse than they are in this in these movies. It's just we don't have any recognition with him, and it's such a major part. It feels weird that we haven't seen him before or since. Eh, I hadn't seen Gary Sinise before either. I've seen him since, but when I watched this, I was drawn to Gary Sinise. Because he's a great actor. Yeah, Adam Stork is not a great actor. Neither is Molly Ringwald, neither is Rob Lowe, neither is... Rob Lowe is great in this. We'll get to Rob Lowe. He is great in this. No, please. <laughs> Funniest part of the film, yes. But... Adam Stork, I don't know, maybe it's the fact that some of the dialogue still is transplanted directly from the 70s. That brown sound sure do get around. Really? In the 90s? No. Yeah. I, maybe it's just some of these opening scenes. I think he gets better later. By night four, I think he's really good, which is weird because it was filmed out of order. But these early scenes, this first night, Larry's the one I don't like. It, he grows on me over time. And it, it's not the character. It's not that he's shifty. It's just this portrayal. I just don't like real-world Larry. I like it much better after the apocalypse. <laughs> Did you get some uh, woman in the room uh, with him and his mother here? You know, he's come back to New York from the West Coast. Feels like everything bad is coming from the West Coast, doesn't it? But he's the shippy guy looking for $40,000 to borrow off his aging mother, and he ends up having the barrier here. 
he's not a great actor, so I'm not emotionally touched by it. But I think we're meant to see his potential in the way that he has to bury her and think about life beyond his one-hit wonder, what have you. He is the one character for half the story I'm not sure which way he's going to go. I'm not sure whether he will be tempted to head to Vegas or whether he will stay with the good people on the farm. And even later, once he does head towards Vegas, he still has a struggle with his faith. Again, he's given the most interesting material. Not that this actor does a whole lot with it, but this character is the best written, at least for this TV movie. I don't know about the book, but for this TV movie, it's the most interesting character. To me, he's the star of the book, more than Stu, because he does more. He does have that arc. He does have that crisis at the end, and he does go to Vegas, unlike Stu. And I wish they maybe reverse actors here. Now, they had wanted Rob Lowe to play this role. They wanted him to play the rocker. And Rob Lowe was a big fan of The Stand, and he came in and goes, no, no, I am going to play Nick Andros, the deaf mute. Oh, man. Wow. And I remember even reading the Entertainment Weekly review at the time. I mean, Rob Lowe, he'd had his sex three-way, two different types of three-ways, both the Angels and the Devils three-way sex tapes come out. And they said it was humorous acting to take him and cast him as a dumb mute. But this was his choice. He wanted this role. He wanted to be part of the stand. This is what put him back on the road to the West Wing and eventually Salem's Lot and whatever he's doing now. Stephen King doesn't do subtle. Typically, all the characters are bold. If they're ugly and grotesque, we get that early, often, and all the time. If they've got some kind of impairment, he really sells that that's their whole identity. Here, this is sort of a, dare I say, comical invention here. I never see the humanity of Nick. He feels like, oh, we need to include a handicapped individual into the mix. And so that's how we will see Nick for the entire time. He's the guy that can't speak and has to write on a pad, ultimately paired with someone that can't read. It's like its own punchline. Yes, that's the sitcom spinoff, the Nick and Tom show, M-O-O-N. That spells Nick and Tom. <laughs> See, for me, Nick was my in. Now, I was not a big Rob Lowe fan coming into this. Sure, I love About Last Night, and I'd seen St. Elmo's Fire, but I was wondering what these Rat Packers were doing even getting jobs in 94. But he plays this role with such sympathy. He's such a good guy. He's a deaf-mute. And yet, instantly, we first time we're introduced to him, he's being beaten up by a bunch of townies. It's an emotionally manipulative care that you have about him, because, yeah, I don't know why he's getting beat up. I don't know what <laughs> these people did to him. It ultimately doesn't matter. Like, yeah, he ends up in a jail all bruised, and a doctor whose sexuality, I question, he's always trying to get everyone's shirt off. I don't know what his deal is. I think that's his doctor's sense of humor. <laughs> It's not that Nick does anything to get my sympathy. It's that he's a Christ figure. He's just getting beat up the whole time. So why wouldn't I have sympathy for this character who's so nice and everyone just spits on? But he stays and takes care of those who beat him up. He didn't need to. The doctor says, come to the cabin with me. We'll avoid this disease. All right. Now that I say that out loud, maybe yes. I do have to question the doctor's <laughs> sexuality. But he has a chance to escape. He stays to take care of those who beat him up. Between the facial expressions, that Rob gives and the actions that Nick does make this the most sympathetic character. I'll just say right now, I actually cried when they killed him. Originally or for this viewing? Or every five years when you watch it. Originally, back in the 90s. I saw it coming this time. <laughs> <laughs> it took a few times for me not to well up a little bit, but now I, I know it's coming. But yeah, when this first aired, 
I was so shocked that my favorite character could be blown away so heartlessly. Okay. It feels manipulative, emotionally manipulative. You say, I I think that's pretty accurate. It's interesting to think about. I do like the idea that we're asked to think about people that have disadvantages already in the world and how they're going to deal with this impossible situation. I mean, it is amazing to think, how is he going to get to Nebraska on his own here, particularly when he's partnered with Tom, who, yeah, I mean, anyone partnered with Tom is going to be having to explain a lot and not get very far down the road. It's almost a dumb and dumber kind of pairing. (laughs) I, I know that it's meant to elicit sympathy, but too often it just seems kind of pathetic and comical. See, I really like that. Now, Bill Fabergeki... I'm never going to pronounce that right. Does he play smart in anything? Wasn't he like (laughs) mentally challenged on coach? He plays Patrick the dumb starfish on Spongebob or voices him? He was not mentally challenged on coach. He was just a jock. I always thought he was kind of slow on that show. Okay. Well, he's never played a brain trust, I don't think. I mean... Maybe he can't with that voice. But he does a lot of voiceover work. It's impressive the amount of voiceover work he does since I always picture him as having one voice and that's the voice that goes M-O-O-N. That spells (laughs) whatever you want it to spell. Yeah. But these two together give me my best in of this story. I really want to see these two because they're the ones who are going to have it hardest. And so I, you guys call it manipulative, consider me manipulated. Because when they run across Shawnee Smith and Tom, he shouldn't have eaten all those apples and she tells him it's poison, you really wonder if those two are going to make it. I'm surprised that King writes a story in which we start off not knowing which characters will live or die, and then all the characters that live actually make it to the free zone. I really think it could have been interesting if some of them had died on the way. Yeah, that might have been a way to go. I don't know. These are the scenes I would remove. Honestly, it feels like National Lampoon's Rain Man, and I just don't like them. But Nick and Tom are the first ones to get to where they're going. By night two, it's already been hinted at in night one, but by night two, we understand that there are two destinations if you survive the plague. You can either head to Vegas and work for the bad guys, or everyone seems to be offered the Nebraska choice. Hemingford home is the home of 106-year-old Abigail Fremantle, or Mother Abigail, as she's called. And I was shocked. So we we first learned about her because Nick has a dream, and he's walking through corn. I'm like, is this Hubie? Is this who is causing all the corn to rise up? I talk about that in my Children of the Corn books and nachos. Some people say Randall Flagg is Hubie. Yes. <laughs> I disagree, but they were written around the same time, and yes, there's Cornfield. And remember, what was that town one over from Gatlin? Hemingford. Yeah, no, I caught the name. Yeah, it stuck with me that we were going to get pretty close to Gatlin here with Abigail. But even she doesn't want to be there. What's so strange to me is it's a moving target. Come to my country home in my cornfields. Oh, no, wait, we're going to Boulder. (laughs) What blows me away is a a group gets to Nebraska and they're like, all right, we're heading to Boulder. We'll just leave a note for the rest that show up here. (laughs) I would be pissed if I were Molly Ringwald and Gary Sinise. (laughs) Here they're kind of going biblical. I mean, she's supposed to be Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Here, she's calling them to Hemingford home, and we get to see Rob Lowe talk. I mean, he is the first one to dream of Mother Abigail, and he can talk to her in this purple haze dream. And yeah, some people, it seems, only dream of her. Some people dream only of Randall Flagg. 
Some people dream of both and get to make that choice. And it's in this movie, it's Vegas or it's going to be Boulder, Colorado. In the book, it turns out it's Boulder, Colorado or anywhere else. <laughs> Randall Flagg <laughs> owns Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, Vegas. But here it basically becomes two settlements, Boulder versus Vegas. And yeah, if you wanted to consolidate, perhaps the move to Boulder wasn't quite so necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm glad we don't have to watch multiple nukes go off. I'd really worry about Fallout getting to Boulder then. So consolidating all the bad guys into Vegas makes sense. You know, I get a shining vibe off of Mother Abigail. The book says she has the shine. Okay, there you go. That's why I get a shining vibe, because it is. <laughs> I do find it weird, though, that as I'm watching this, and I'm waiting for a twist, because it's becoming such a clear-cut God versus... They say Randall Flagg's an apostate of hell, so maybe he's not the devil. But this heaven versus hell thing, which is weird because I always saw King as being kind of cynical towards religion, you know, with Carrie and Children of the Corn. They, in that first film, they say the children were brainwashed to be this way because of religion. So I, I find it weird as this movie unfolds. Now we're getting a modern day Moses who's leading the children of Israel. And that's a positive thing for King. I don't think King is anti-religion. I think he's anti-fundamentalist. If you presume to know the word of God and preach it, you're usually the bad guy in his stories. Usually these are the aggressors that, yeah, drive Carrie to burn the house down. But no, I feel like, yeah, there was a goodness and a, what, a lightness and a darkness? Isn't that usually how he categorizes it? Yeah, but it's rarely so biblical. I mean, here we have one of the fundamentalists, Mother Abigail, is the leader of the good guys. And that is strange for King. I was surprised because in all his interviews at the time, he talks about the light and the dark. And here, it's God and the devil. I was wondering if they softened it up for family TV, but the book is like that. Oh, hardcore. Very hardcore. I mean, huh. this whole thing, King started off saying he wanted to write Lord of the Rings. And certainly I get that. I mean, look at Lord of the Rings. What do they do? They walk. They walk and walk <laughs> and walk. And when they get to where they're going, they walk some more. Well, that's what we have during the stand, right? I mean, you talk about them getting to Hemingford home and then having to go on to Boulder, Colorado. But that is the fellowship, right? The fellowship going on their big walk. There's some battles in between there. I don't know how much action we actually get in this film, except maybe a crazy lady in some city full of mannequins. Yeah, Shawnee Smith goes a little nuts, tries to... Does her character have a name? I never caught a name for her. Yeah, her name's Julie, and she actually plays a part later on, surprisingly. But Shawnee Smith playing crazy like no one's business. Yeah. It was kind of entertaining yeah. seeing her taunt a deaf mute and a mentally challenged man. Admittedly, though, Lord of the Rings doesn't start with the complete death of all of Middle-earth thanks to plague, so I can give it this. I also feel Lord of the Rings, the epic kind of sneaks up on you. You start with a couple of hobbits, and then two more join them, and then you got a Fellowship of Nine, then it's, it branches out. Here, I am being assaulted by characters and trying to keep track of everyone and who's who and who's headed where it's a daunting task seeing it play out in front of you on television maybe when you're reading the book it's easier to follow but trying to keep track of everyone here you know we'll meet a guy named ralph i don't know if i should write his name down if he's going to be really important later on <laughs> so many names yeah i did have the benefit of the book but the lord of the rings thing i bring it up because i discussed in those podcasts that donors can hear about how i saw that as like a biblical allegory and tolkien didn't mean that well here king started trying to write tolkien and what he ended up writing was just very, very clear biblical allegory. I mean, down to the death of Christ, biblical quotes, 
the walk into the desert like the prophets. I mean, this thing is hardcore Bible. And, you know, these days I'd almost consider it pandering, trying to bring in that Christian audience, you know, the left behind folk. No, I actually wrote down left behind. I really felt it was on that level. Yes, it is. To some degree, but I feel like secular audiences enjoy that story. I feel like everyone, as we approach the millennium, like to ponder what the end might be because it felt like it we could get it soon. And if, yeah, the Christian Bible had some good ideas, I think secular audiences are down for this. You know, I think that Mother Abigail is just as much Gandalf as she is Moses, or Harriet Tubman, for that matter. I mean, you can see all sorts of parallels to different points in history. And yes, while the Christian elements are prevalent, I don't feel like this would be classified as a Christian work. This is a Stephen King horror story that is slowly morphing into something else. Yeah, yeah. I, I just feel everything is so clear-cut. If you're a sinner, if you're a herald, you're going to die for your sins. Like, there's no repentance. There's one moment of repentance with Mother Abigail. She's given into pride, and she's not following God's way. She disappears for a while and shows up all beat up. I would have liked more, you know, to find out a little bit more what happened there. I'm sure that's in the book. She wasn't beat up. She was just went away for a couple months and probably didn't eat much. Yeah, she just starvation and the elements. I mean, you don't want to live in the mountains of Boulder without electricity. She's 106, for Christ's sake. I just wish there was more moral ambiguity in this film, to be stronger, to not just be a Christian feel-good left-behind series. It does come off that way, though. I mean, but King is always good about the black and the white. Here, because he invokes God, it just feels more religious. If he had not invoked God, if Mother Abigail wasn't here quoting scripture, saying, it doesn't matter if you believe in God, God believes in you, it would feel far more like normal King. King is always judgmental. He always identifies for audiences who bad characters are, who good are. I rarely feel like characters straddle the gray for too long. And here, yeah, you get punished for it. You can best believe that all of the good characters that die, they have heroic deaths. All the bad characters, they're punished for worshiping sin. Evil, much like it was in Tolkien, destroys itself. We'll see. Randall Flagg just isn't very good at this, for as long as he must be planning. And he really seems to be eating it up. I mean, his little crow character for the first night is just hopping around, watching the devastation, grinning in rearview mirrors, laughing about how it's all falling apart. I don't think he's got a real good plan about what to do once it's polarized into two camps, because the bad guys in the stand, they get the short shrift, don't they? Are they even that bad? I want to just say, we've got this laid out, the good guys and the bad guys. And on the bad guys, they're led by Randall Flagg, played by the absolutely awful Jamie Sheridan. I do love that the devil dresses in all denim, though. <laughs> and that the most <laughs> evil thing in 94 was a mullet. Come on! Yeah. It was! We were so over hair metal. This is like <laughs> the Death Leopard come back at us. And I disagree with your characterization. I just want to put it out there. I think Jamie Sheridan is fun in this movie. Yeah, he is fun, and I think he's an imposing character. He's a big guy when he gets up in people's faces. I don't know if I buy him as some demon when they do oh. those awful effects. But as an opposing character, yes. Yeah, no, those effects are a different story. No, no. This guy, he carries no weight for me. I mean, they're talking about doing a big screen remake of this and putting McConaughey in that role. McConaughey could play it. But you want sexy rock star cool with menace. And this guy, I just don't get him off of this. But, I mean, these bad guys, they go to Vegas... They don't do anything to anybody. They just kind of sit around Vegas. They do try to arm some planes, and the good people think they're going to be bombed. But really, it's these quote-unquote good people who send spies, the quote-unquote yeah. good people 
who do every aggressive act. And I thought that was going to play into the story. Like, we see that when we get to Vegas, no one's doing drugs. There isn't crime. Like, Flag has cleaned up the city, which is weird because he ha- he's taken Lloyd. We get this whole backstory with Lloyd. Miguel Ferrer, who we saw in RoboCop, you know, he's running things for Randall Flag. Second in command, trash can man, Matt Frewer, who, you know what, after this King retrospective, I just got mad props for Matt Frewer, the stuff he has pulled off, playing <laughs> trash can man, this pyro here. I don't know why you put a pyro in charge if you are going to be arming nukes to planes, but okay, that seems like a bad idea. Yeah, I love both of these characters. I love both of these actors. I mean, coming into this, Miguel Ferrer, not only Robocop to me, but playing Albert on Twin Peaks, and then coming into here, he really, really wanted the Randall Flagg role, and they decided he was too well known for it. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, they were trying to court Christopher Walken, Willem Dafoe, and Jeff Goldblum. Not on this budget. But Miguel Ferrer, <laughs> he's too well known. <laughs> I like those choices, by the way, and yes. I like Miguel Ferrer for this, but no, I don't have a problem with Jamie Sheridan. I think he's got a creepy leer. His smile is unnerving. His chin looks fake, but it isn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, I go with him. And I do think that Lloyd, the Miguel Ferrer character, is the most interesting, nuanced of the bad guys. He's the only one that has to struggle with anything. I mean, he's trapped in a jail cell when he's discovered by the Dark Man. He makes a promise. He takes a key. It turns into like a little black stone. I think that's how you know you're in the club with the bad guy. But he stays loyal while other people get to Vegas and quickly find out that hell isn't as fun as it was promised to be, that there's no sin here, that people are actually crucified for being drug addicts, that you can't do nefarious things when you get to Vegas. I mean, it's the reverse of how we think of Vegas. But Miguel Ferrer's character is going to stick with him, and he feels a loyalty to him. And to me, that makes him more interesting. I agree. He's my favorite character on the dark side. He's in this movie and the book. I really like him and the arc he goes on. It's better in the book, of course. Everything's better in the book. It's more expanded upon. But here, when he's in that jail cell after the shootout with Poke at the beginning, and then just the terror of being there with a rat so you don't starve to death that he gets out and that he actually becomes the second in command and stays loyal because of that that he actually is successful because it's miguel ferrer i know he's going to be successful because man he ran ocp right <laughs> but i think that's actually a poor casting as a dumb criminal and great casting as a second in command but I like him here. I like that he stays till the end. When everybody else is running out, Lloyd's like, nah, I'm going to stick it out just in case. I like him. I love Matt Frewer as Trash Can Man. I think he really gives his all to this part. And there's just something fun about a firebug. You know, there's something about a pyromaniac that I just love to see on screen. There's no rhyme or reason. It's all about the flame. I did want to know more of his backstory. He hears voices obviously made fun of as a child, keep seeing this, like, golden city. What is it? Cybola? I never got a sense of what that was, except that he was just a crazy guy. I was hoping that would play into something. But, yeah, this is a character I did want to know more about. We didn't get much of a backstory for him, like some of these other characters, where I didn't feel it was too necessary. I don't know that the book helps you out that much. He's just kind of crazy. Dang! <laughs> it, it does help if you want to know, like, about his craziness and his mental institution stay and all of that. I mean, but it is just, he's a pyromaniac, and he is uncontrollable. But he's also a savant. King places it like this. 
Tom Cullen is to the good guys what Trash Can Man is to the bad guys. Ah. They're both a little bit mentally deranged. He considers them the wizards. You know, Mother Abigail is the white queen, Randall Flagg the dark king, and these are their wizards who will go out and do the things other people can't, but they're mentally addled at the same time. And Trash Can Man is a savant. Why does you put him in charge of the weapons? Because nobody else can figure them out, but you put him in a hangar with a bomb, he's going to figure out how it goes. I like that element. I like the character. I can't go with you on Matt Frewer, and I haven't been with you on Matt Frewer anytime <laughs> we bring up Matt Frewer. Lawnmower Man 2, Generation X. Maybe if we actually covered the Max Headroom TV movie, I could endorse him. Honey, I shrunk the kids. <laughs> I don't even think in that one. Jacob. He's pretty bad in that. Yeah, no, that's why this has surprised me with Matt Frewer. I didn't know he had this crazy side besides Max Headroom. I always just went off Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, where he's pretty normal. We'll eventually get to him with Watchmen. For whatever reason he's been given this role, I just can't not see him as a dime store Jim Carrey. And so when he's wheeling around <laughs> on a moped going, it's for you! I mean, comedy, again, I don't think I'm supposed to be laughing. And he gets so weird in this. I know that he's sunburnt because, you know, he's in the sun a lot, unexposed. There's no sunblock for him. And, of course, he's playing with fire, so he's probably got some first and second degree to his face. But by the end of it, he is practically melting as he's running around. It's They make some weird makeup choices. No, that was the radiation leaking from the nuke. Okay, that's how I took it, that it was radiation poisoning he was suffering from. It looked funny to me. I guess that's what I would say is sad about it, is that Trash Can Man should feel like a scary, imbalanced wild card. That he it could go just as wrong for the good guys as the bad guys with him in play. That he makes it interesting. And that way, I think of Saruman, if we're doing Lord of the Rings comparatives. But no, he doesn't have that gravitas. He seems... Like a fool. I don't think he's given enough to do in this miniseries. We see him at the beginning blowing up oil tankers, and he works in a hangar a little bit, and then eventually blows it up. He burned down Des Moines. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, that is reference. At first, I thought they were in Indiana because there was the fire set with the oil tankers. He's burning wherever he goes. I like his role in this, and I disagree with you. When we did Lawnmower Man 2... And when we did Generation X, I did see that Jim Carrey. But here, I don't see him playing Jim Carrey. Here, I see him playing insane, dangerous, a little funny in certain ways, but also kind of sad. The my life for you, my life for you. I mean, the devotion, the love he shows towards Flag. I feel a little bad for him. He and Lloyd have my sympathy as bad guys. I wish I knew why Trash Can Man sided more with Randall Flagg, why he was so devoted to him. Maybe this is in the book. Maybe this is because it's a TV budget. You just can't get into this. I feel like, okay, this is supposed to be an epic. Not that they have to be wizards, but I do want to get that feeling. If these are a black king versus a white queen, and they have wizards and knights. Again, this is set in a post-apocalyptic America. They don't have to literally have those names, but I do want to get that vibe. And again, maybe it's TV budget. No, no, no. It's it, it's just a metaphor. It's just roles. He, there's no magic in the book either. No, no, and I don't want magic, but I do want to feel like these characters are more than just average Joes that they've risen from, and I don't know if I ever feel that. I just feel like he's a refugee from a Mad Max movie, and that's cool. I do like those scenes, Arnie. I do like him blowing up the refinery. I do like him off on his own doing his thing. Ultimately, as we get to Night's 4, and I think Night 4 is filled with embarrassing bad moments that are unintentionally funny, I just see that he's the cause of many disastrously bad 
scenes that are supposed to be frightening. Well, we'll get to those in a bit. I mean, if you want to talk disastrously frightening, we got to talk Laura San Giacomo. Yes. The oh. character that, is she bad? Is she good? Uh, even at the end, I'm not entirely sure. She's fated to be the bride of the dark man and she knows it from the get-go when we meet her on night two larry finds her in central park considering killing herself she knows that her destiny is with flag that she i don't even think she drinks of abigail and she's always known because she's a virgin even though she's an adult woman she is a virgin who was saving herself for Flag. Oh, I didn't take that literally. I, I thought she just didn't want to sleep with Harold. She'll give him blowjobs, but she didn't want to sleep with them, so she said she was a virgin. No, no, that's literal. Okay. Maybe the wrong actress, then, <laughs> to pull off this virginal look. Sex lies and videotape? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it should be pointed out that Laura San Giacomo was a highlight of sex lies and videotape as a very slutty, mischievous character. And the idea that she's virginal... It's a tough sell here, and even tougher is that wig. <laughs> the ever-changing colored wig, yeah. yeah. It's her real hair for, like, the first two nights, and then it's quite obviously not. <laughs> At no point is it good hair. I will just add that, that uh, your look in Sex Lies was much better. Yeah, her fright wig is truly the scariest thing in the stand, but I'm not a Laura San Giacomo fan. I will admit I watched every season of Just Shoot Me, <laughs> in spite of her, not because of her. You're a David Spade fan? Is that why you stuck around? David Spade and Brian Posehn, George Segal, Enrico Colianti. I mean, there's funny people in Just Shoot Me, and then there's Laura San Giacomo. And she is perhaps the worst actress. I'll dare say yes, as far as actress, she's the worst in the stand. From that first appearance the second night, where she has that crazy laugh and yet Larry decides to take her along with and her just performance, I never go with it. I don't know if she knows if she's a femme fatale or if she's a victimized woman. And oh boy, she, you think Matt Frewer brings the comedy. Laura Sangiacomo, <laughs> she's the laugh riot of this movie. Yeah, I don't know that she's much worse than Ringwald. Ringwald grates on my nerves with her whining. I really can't take that character. I don't think the women are actually very served in the stand. As progressive as it wants to seem, the black lady that's leading them dies and the white guys kind of take control and the two major women characters are basically there to get babies. Yeah, pregnant and barefoot by the end of this. <laughs> you forget Sue, the seventh member of the council who blows up. <laughs> you mean Mick Garris's wife? Yeah, I know that she's in there. <laughs> She kind of helped turn on the power. Actually, the guy turned on the power, and she kind of gave him the thumbs up. She pushed a button. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but my point is, is that Nadine Cross is very pivotal, but she's more of a MacGuffin or an object in play. She's going to have the Antichrist, right? And so that's why she's interesting here. And the fact that she could have Larry or that Larry could save her. Well, I just don't get that because I don't know that Larry's going to be a good character until after he meets the woman that's going to make him a good character, Lucy. Is that what makes him a good character? I mean, I was very influenced by three readings of this novel by the time I got around to watching the miniseries for this review. But in that book, it's very clear he's struggling with being a good guy and a bad guy throughout his entire journey to Hemingford home. And here, he didn't meet Nadine originally. He met somebody else who he tries to take along, and she ends up killing herself in spite of him, and it really makes a crisis of conscience. But by the time he's even leaving, he's trying to be a good man, and he tries to get her to go with him, 
I mean, it's not a very subtle metaphor, but ever since Rambo, anytime somebody goes through a tunnel, I view it as birth. <laughs> and so when he goes through the Lincoln Tunnel there with all the corpses and then she comes after him, when he goes out the other side, I know he's a good guy. I still don't get that. He's still trying to bang her and always suspect when you're trying to take advantage of the woman when you're out in the wilderness. There's no other options around. I can't feel that it must hurt him to know that she prefers the company of Stephen King. When she finally gets to Boulder, <laughs> she's riding in the pickup with the author. He's playing a character in this as well. She doesn't go with him. No, but she left him long behind because she was afraid she'd sleep with him because she wanted to sleep with him. And if she wasn't a virgin, she can't be Randall Flagg's baby mama. And I don't even get that whole subplot where she's, I guess, supposed to birth the Antichrist. She's, okay, I get that she's the one that turns Harold. Harold, he spurned, Stu has taken Fran away from him. He's angry. It's Nadine that her role is to turn Harold against everyone else in Boulder. I think it was already there. He was probably going to run away to Vegas. I mean... Keep in mind, all of the people that we see, when they get to Boulder, they get elected to a committee, and they're like the cool people that get to decide how the city's going to go. He has to go around picking up corpses. And Ralph! <laughs> yeah, Ralph and Sue somehow get on there. <laughs> Director's wife, I'm telling you. <laughs> and Glenn, we didn't talk about Glenn. Glenn came in with Stu, played by Ray Walston, a great actor who I think brings a lot of levity and is my second favorite performance in this role with the first being... What? Gary Sinise. Because he has the dog. He has Kojak. Kojak's a good dog. You get a lot of sympathy for that dog. <laughs> no, he says all the wise things. I think he's the scholar. You know, if Harold is who Stephen King used to be, Glenn is who Stephen King was at the time of writing the book or rewriting the book. A former teacher who can spout off wisdom and quotes that people ignore i just love it he's like <laughs> i don't know why we would go back to the old ways of death and have electricity and they're like oh yeah click we're turning on the power <laughs> I, I don't think people really care about the only one that cares about glenn is kojak and that's because he wants to get a bone <laughs> <laughs> yeah harold in this series played by corin nemec harold is quite obviously a snarling bad guy in the book it's much more nuanced and He's almost on the verge of going on the light path when Nadine comes and pushes him over. Here, it's like, these are two rotten people mm -hmm. in a town full of saints. And why they are not cast out or at least taken care of or talked to. I mean, when Nadine gets to town, the first thing she does is insult Mother Abigail and force her to sit down and pass out. I was shocked that they let Nadine stay after that whole incident. Or why didn't they have guards posted at her door at least? Yeah, and then she goes and tries to break up Larry's relationship. He's calling himself married. He's with Lucy. They've kind of adopted a stray child. Yeah, who was supposed to have come in with Nadine in the book, but now... Joe, the feral child, he gets the real short shift in this movie. He should have been cut. He really, there was no point of Joe in this story. I just take it to mean that the Lucy and Joey make Larry noble. You say you liked him after he went through the tunnel. I wasn't sure until he met this woman and it sort of corrected him. He was becoming responsible. He flirted it with his mother, but he really showed it with this home relationship. Yeah, it's kind of downplayed, though. That's how I took it. Nadine was the bad girl. He moves on from her and settles down with the woman with the child and learns responsibility. The way it's edited, the way it's told here, 
I get very little about Lucy at all. That he settles down with Lucy means nothing to me because, all right, I couldn't bang Nadine. Hey, here's Lucy. Yeah, she's got to feel great about it. She's got a feral child, though. Come on, you, you got to man up to take care of a feral child. <laughs> oh, she's definitely insecure. I mean, she's peeking out the window when they're having their fight on the lawn. She thinks he's going to leave her at any given moment, but he doesn't. He has opted for domesticity and stability and certainly less hair. So Nadine goes and hooks up with Harold, who gets more pissy after a blowjob. Aren't guys usually less pissy after getting a blowjob? <laughs> and I got the feeling he's getting a lot of them. Like, <laughs> he's just lounging around in his underwear. I don't know. Maybe, though, you got to look at Nadine with that bad gray wig. Maybe it ruins the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> just seeing that bad gray wig go up and down and up and down. <laughs> but this is the needed plot for episode three. Because I got to say, by night three, now that Boulder is become this stable community and they have their elected leaders, it's kind of dull now. Like, the, all the fear of the pandemic has gone. No one else is dying of flu. Okay, now what? The best change to this miniseries is that this is mercifully short because this goes on for about 300 pages of the book. I mean, there is just so much. Let's get a council together. Oh, look, this guy doesn't like the council. He's snarky. Oh, look, here's the town drunk. Oh, look, let's get the power going. Oh, look, the power was on, but now every fuse is blown because they left on their blenders. This is endless in the book. I mean, there's no sign of the bad guys during all of this. It's just all the boulder free zone. And I remember, though, when this aired, I mentioned that they took Tuesday night off for Roseanne. When we come back in part three and Stu's like giving some surgery and things, I felt like I missed a night. And it, because it skipped a night, there's a huge jump of what's going on in part two to what's going on in part three. Yeah, there's more people whose names I don't know. One of them's dying. I don't know if I was supposed to know that person. It is confusing because too much stuff going on in this. I didn't find it confusing until the third night. I think that they gently peppered in new characters about the amount that I could handle. But yeah, by the third time, it's not that there's too many characters. It's that, that the new characters in night three get nothing to do. The council decides, oh, we need spies. And so they're electing people that we barely see. I mean, Ossie Davis, what, he's had one scene prior to this? He buried somebody, and now he's going to go off and be a spy? Am I to be invested that he's going to get anywhere? And again, I point out, the good people are sending spies. The bad people, they're just living their lives. They have no drugs. They're getting people off heroin, yeah. <laughs> No, 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 no. They don't need to send spies because Randall Flagg can pop up as a crow anywhere he wants. His spies are already there. They're Nadine and Harold. It needed to tie that. It feels like who I'm supposed to believe are the good guys, the Americans. I mean, we get to listen to the entire national anthem at one point during this town meeting. They're the ones sending spies. I don't get the sense that the people in Las Vegas flags people are as sinister. I think we're supposed to think that because he's a demon. But I don't get that sense in this. Stuart did point out something very key, though. And that is, Flag is goading Harold. It's Harold who does it. So I'm. it didn't seem as direct, because Harold was pissy anyway. But because of Flag and Nadine, Harold works up a bomb that's going to kill my favorite character, Nick. Yeah, and what a dream sequence. Can I say, like... This feels all kinds of weird when, like, he's basically shown that all of this unused dynamite is in the city's core, and there's, like, a puppet in a car that's like, hey, man, let's go do this. I mean, it, the movie's tone is starting to slide in night three. 
I mean, it's called the betrayal. Night three, they let us know early. I like the idea that someone is going to disrupt this Eden-like community. And at the point of the betrayal, they actually put the betrayal on the screen, which I found odd. Yes, I did too. I'm like, didn't I already see that? I actually had to go back and check. I'm like, you're really telling me twice? Like, and they tell you at the moment. <laughs> but keep in mind, this is television back in the day when people didn't have DVRs and TiVos and what have you. But we had VCRs, come on. Yeah, but who could figure that one out? I mean, <laughs> people came in and out, and I do feel like they did a pretty good job of catching up to speed. If you missed the previous night, or you stepped out and missed the previous commercial break, I feel like information is given again and again and again. If they made this miniseries now, even on the same budget, they would be able to condense and make a more intricate ensemble. They had to dumb it down for an audience that didn't have the luxury of pausing the show. But my point is, I like the idea that there's going to be a betrayal, but Harold is rather silly at this point, and Nadine has never not been silly. I guess I just wish that they seemed more evil. Instead of cartoon evil. I mean, even when he decides to take the bomb out, I think he's using the remote control that Mother Abigail was using to run the lawnmower. It just, it kind of ruins it for me. I swear, when they first show that lawnmower moving, they hide that remote. I'm like, wait, wait, we're getting a lawnmower man reference in this too? (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't take it as that, but it kind of was, wasn't it? When you see a lawnmower mowing itself that way. I don't think he had a remote control to set it off. Didn't he set it off with the walkie-talkies? Yeah, it was a remote device. He was working off of a third-place science experiment. We do see that in one of the montages. He's listening to Disco Fever. Again, in Stephen King, if you're listening to disco and not classic rock, it means you're evil. And, uh, yeah, he's putting the bomb together, telling Nadine to take a walk. All I'm saying is that for the first two nights, despite the flaws of Mick Garris as a director, despite what they don't have in budget, I felt like it was still captivating me. And by night three, by the time we're getting this betrayal, I'm feeling a real slippage in quality, in tone, in my investment in the show. I agreed with you on that on my first watching, and that's always been my impression, is that the first two nights of this were so strong, and the second two nights of this were so weak. Now what I'll agree with is, this third night, for about 70 of its 90 minutes is exceptionally weak. But this ending, when Harold is actually setting off the bomb, they're fleeing, Nick dies, and then Mother Abigail comes back from her trek to tell the four guys they have to walk to Vegas and make their stand. (laughs) Then that works for me. There's an hour out of this six-hour epic that really is a lot of them just fumbling around. I go into a lot of detail about this in Books and Nachos, King didn't know what he was doing. He talks about it on the commentary. King didn't know where the story was going. King didn't know what the characters were doing. The fix was killing Nick, who I think in the book, King saw as the star of this entire thing, but it just didn't work out that way. Stu came to the fore, and so poor Nick had to die. At least he becomes an angel, right? He's not really dead. He's an angel of God now. Why does he die? Okay, I know why he dies. A bomb goes off. But why, like... Everyone runs out of the house. It's not like he was taking the shrapnel, like jumping on a grenade. I don't understand why. Why did he think he could defuse the bomb? If you hear that there's a bomb in the place, why do you run to the closet? Yeah. It was noble to try. I blame Mother Abigail because she was communicating the bomb to all of them. They all had this psychic push from Mother Abigail, except what Nick gets is, it's in the closet. (laughs) Not get out of the house. It's in the closet. (laughs) 
Yeah, Mother Abigail is certainly suspect. Maybe she wanted it to work out this way. Who knows? But he had no prayer of being able to dismantle what Harold had built and what Nadine had planted. And so, yes, he dies. Susan dies. I don't know that anyone cares. We're given a couple other names. 20 other people are hurt, including pregnant Franny, but the baby is okay. Yes, it set everything to be discombobulated. It doesn't feel like a paradise anymore. You wonder, are these people going to be able to sustain? I don't like that Mother Abigail has this mission for the remaining characters. That, okay, they need to do something, admittedly, but they've already sent three spies. They not only sent Judge Ferris, Ozzie Davis, but they've sent some woman to seduce Lloyd. Dana. Yeah, and they've sent M-O-O-N. They've sent Tom Cullen. I mean, that was Nick's idea. Thank God he wasn't there to see Nick blown up. In one of the most hilarious hypnotism scenes I've ever seen. Like, they have to hypnotize him to give him his mission. And it's so cruel. I'm starting to think that these are the bad guys, the things that they tell him. Like, hey, if they catch you, tell them you were kicked out because they didn't want you to put a retard baby in the women. Like, this is cruel stuff. Well, they do that with a heavy heart. They're literally using language that would make it seem believable. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you knew that Tom came from Boulder City, you would want to know what he was doing there. You'd have to give him a reason that's ugly enough to believe that he was an outcast. Yeah, I agree. They didn't want to do this. Why they chose to send Tom is a mystery. And these spies accomplish nothing, I might add. Two of them, Dana and the judge, both get killed while there. No, judge never gets there. He's like in Idaho and Sam Raimi shoots him. (laughs) Yeah, Sam Raimi. Nice cameo there. Uh, Yeah, but they both die on the way. Tom gets there, spends his whole time, M-O-O-N. That means I work on planes now. And then the full moon comes. He starts heading back. Admittedly, his trek back is important, but sending all of those spies, King wasn't quite sure what he was writing. It happened. And now we get to the real mission. We get to the boil down. These four men must walk into the desert and go make their stand. They have to trek to Vegas. Now, I dare say everything that happens in the rest of the story would have happened whether or not they'd gone to Vegas. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Evil destroys itself. There is nothing that the good guys do really to stop Randall Flagg. Randall Flagg does a great job of screwing it up all by himself. And how does he screw it up exactly? I mean, This is what gets me in the book, the unbridged version, the abridged version, this movie. They get there and Randall Flagg's all falling apart. Shouldn't he be at like the height of his power? Shouldn't he have an army? Shouldn't he, if he is the Eye of Sauron, shouldn't he be almighty? By the time they walk to Vegas from Boulder, not a short walk, I assure you, (laughs) they get there. Nadine has gone, been impregnated, catatonic, and yet catatonic still manages to throw herself off a roof. I was so confused by why have this whole, why devote time talking about how you're going to birth the Antichrist when it just ends up with her committing suicide? Like, your seat is cold. You don't have hot warm man chowder to fill me up with. (laughs) She's so into it until he shows the devil face. I mean, it's like, just like my dream, my moped breaks down. First of all, he kills (laughs) Harold. And, you know, he's like, just like Harold's riding around the corner and he bears his fangs and he goes flying. Nadine doesn't seem bothered by that. I guess she knew at some point she would part ways with the nerd. 
And so she's kind of happy. And Harold has a psychic link with Stu out of nowhere. For some reason, I don't know what it serves in the story. Because everything in episode four must be terrible. That's why. (laughs) I think the terribleness started earlier, but okay. No, episode four is soup to nuts. It does get ridiculous. Yes. Starting with Harold's death and ending the way that they end it, it is a lot of terrible. Okay, no, no, no. I'm going to defend this movie now. Harold's death actually, it is a horrible way to die that he is just left there with a broken leg. I mean, he deserves it because he was a douchebag. And he lived a douchebag. He dies a douchebag. His suicide note, I was misled. No, you weren't, you son of a bitch. You just are making excuses literally till the end. The psychic connection with Stu, I don't get that. That's not in the book. They just run across his body in the book. So I don't get why he is suddenly connected to Stu and Stu knows when he broke his bones and when he killed himself. But then Nadine getting impregnated with the seed. I mean, all right, anything with Nadine is bad. I'll give you that. (laughs) That white wig, come on. Oh boy, that's terrible. No! I mean, that love scene or whatever you want to call about it is... I mean, yeah, if I weren't already worried about Stu's psychic link to Harold, yeah, it's telling me this night four is dreadful. But I'm liking what's happening with the spy Dana. She was the one who seduced Lloyd. She gets a great one-on-one with Randall Flagg where she has to kill herself. And Randall, the only time that Jamie Sheridan ever came across to me as scary, despite his My Demon Lover makeup. And yes, look it up. It's what it looks like is Scott Valentine and My Demon Lover. But beyond that, the only time he scared me was when he's yelling at her, tell me who the third spy is, the modulated voice there, the beating up of a woman, he comes across as truly evil in that moment. I liked another moment. I actually think his scariest moment is when he comes to Sam Raimi, that for some reason, when they were to kill the judge, they were supposed to protect the head. I don't know why. They can't say this on ABC. In the book, they wanted to send the decapitated head back to Boulder. Ah, okay. They have to cut a lot. Of, I mean, they talk about visions of fields of crucified bodies. We see one in this film. And it right. can't even have a cross post because they said no crucifixion. Okay, but for whatever reason, they needed the head. That's fine. I actually liked he's got like the black crow feathers in his hair. When he comes at Sam Raimi, and then he's like radioing back to Lloyd with blood dripping down his mouth. I don't even know what he did to Sam Raimi, but it it seems awful. I don't know. You're not giving Jamie Sheridan enough credit here. I think that he's let down by some bad makeup, and I think he's let down by a character that, yeah, is just kind of a loser demon. And I think you're being unfair to Night 4. I like the guys walk into the desert when Stu, Glenn, Ralph, (laughs) and Larry are all sent out. I get it. Now, Ralph, Ralph is kind of the hanger-on there that I'm like, even in the book, I'm like, all right, I was paying attention because I knew Ralph was important, but I'm like, Ralph is not set up properly to be one of the four apostles (laughs) sent to Vegas. I want to know where his hidden stash of food is. That dude doesn't lose any weight despite having to walk from Boulder to Vegas. And again, much like Larry, I don't think he's served by being played by an actor I've never seen before or since. Oh, I've actually seen this actor a few times. There's a lot of these minor characters that I've seen in other stuff. I mean, admittedly, I had to look up IMDb, but he was a familiar face. Not to me. He's still working. He was in Gili. Uh, not to me. <laughs> <laughs> but come on, Arnie. Is Stu defeated by a ravine in the book? Yes. Like, I'm laughing at this point that he 
falls down a hill, and that's why he can't go to Vegas. This is why I say Stu is kind of a useless character, is by the end of the book, King decided that the four have to go, but he wants a happy ending. Despite it all, King is pretty sentimental. This was not a Bachman book. I think he wanted this story to end with Stu and Franny starting the first family of the post-apocalyptic society. And so if they're going to form that family, he can't go to Vegas and be blown up, so he's going to break his leg. And this is a parallel to what happens to Harold. And I did see that in the book, is there's a lot of parallels. Harold breaks his leg on the way and has to kill himself. Stu breaks his leg along the way and has to think about killing himself. I mean, there's that going on. Plus, Mother Abigail, in her dying preaching, tricked us. She said, one of you will fall. I took that to mean that one of them won't make it to Vegas and the other ones will defeat the evil. I didn't know that the three that are going to get to Vegas are the ones that are doomed. Yeah, and when she said fall, I didn't think she meant so literally. <laughs> Literal, yes. <laughs> one of you are going to trip and not make it to Vegas. But yeah, I mean... He is taken out just so he can then go back. I guess, according to King in the commentary, the whole point of Stu is so he can go back and warn them all, hey, a nuke went off. Let's be careful about our use of technology now. Though Tom is already headed back, but maybe M-O-O-N, he doesn't know what a nuke is, so he couldn't have warned him. So Stu is the witness. Maybe he's the Samwise Gamgee of this group. <laughs> So he can go tell the tales while everybody else goes off to Valhalla or whatever. But no, these three go to Vegas without Stu and Stu is left there with Kojak. I will admit now as a owner of some dogs, I got really sad when Kojak stayed with him and took care of him. I thought that was sweet. I did like that moment. It was sweet. But the other three have to continue their walk where they're picked up by a couple other character actors who I've seen in stuff. Ratman's there. Ratman, I love the Ratman. Should have used him better. Should have used all of these evil characters better. I feel like I didn't want another night. Let, let me put it that way. I didn't want five nights of this. But it would have been nice to give as much time to these folks in Vegas as we did to the folks in Boulder. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. I Look, I'm going to say it now. There's a lot of stuff that could have been cut from this. They could have, yeah, fit a lot more Vegas. I want to know what Flag's plan is. I don't even know who Flag is. I'll, all we really learn... There's a face-off between Glenn and Randall Flagg. They capture the three remaining apostles, I guess we're calling them. Glenn faces off against Randall Flagg in jail, and they mention something like he's an apostate of hell. So, what, he's a disobedient devil that's not under the devil's command? I, I don't even know who Randall Flagg is in this film. Well, you don't know that in the book either. He's very vague, and he's going to be whatever you want him to be. He can be the devil. He can be and a servant of the devil. King doesn't want to nail that down. It's I think he thinks it's scarier if you don't know. And I do think it's a problem with the book. Like I said, when he spends all that time in the free zone, we do not get to check in on Trash Can Man or Lloyd or Randall Flagg or any of them because he's focused on what the good guys are doing. And they're just talking about the bad guys. They're scared of the bad guys, but they don't know exactly what's going on. I think he thinks not knowing is scarier. But when he gets there, yeah, it's kind of a bit of nothing. I mean, it looks like a good place to be. I would probably rather be in Vegas. First of all, the Glitter Gulch is there. Yeah, the place is skeevy. But hey, <laughs> it's still open. This is before the Fremont experience. You can still walk down Fremont Street or drive down it in this film. I would say this. If you thought that they were putting together a nuclear arsenal... The evil has done itself the job of destroying it. Tom didn't bring back that information, and then they used it to stop the airport. 
trash can decided he was going to blow up the plane. So they can't do whatever they were planning to do with those planes. It's already been stopped by evil itself. So it's really, I'm wondering, what are these guys going to do now that they're standing there? They're going to die as martyrs and just hold hands and just kind of rub in their face how pious and better they are than the people that are in Vegas. I was so upset, you know, for decades, wondering what does The Stand mean? I, I remember, like, in junior high, someone was reading that book, and I remember the cover. It was like this ghoulish figure, it almost looked like it was dancing, holding a, a scythe. And I'm like, oh, what, what does The Stand mean? To find out, it's about apostles standing witness to God in the face of evil. Like, it is so literal. That was infuriating to me that, like, that is the climax that we're going to just sit here and watch the devil, I don't know, electrocute some people or something, and then a hand's going to come out. I don't even know what's going on. All right, let me defend this a little bit. You could try. I like that these three men follow their faith. You know, they found their faith, and Larry who doesn't even necessarily believe in God, or at least didn't when he started. The only character arc in the film, yes. He doesn't even want to leave Stu behind, because he thinks it's all foolishness to follow this vision. They all go there, united, and then they see what it is. And they're there just to tell people there's a choice, there's something better. Now, I do wonder, had they not gone to Vegas, Trash Can Man still would have blown up those planes, because he's a pyro. Right. And then he wants to atone for that. He wants to make it up so... Flag likes him again, so he wants to bring Flag a great weapon. He brings him an A bomb. Even if these guys hadn't shown up, he still would have brought an A bomb. Oh, the hand of God might not have shown up. Oh yeah, the literal hand of God. Yeah, and it's made more overt in this movie because Mother Abigail says the promise was fulfilled, and that's when the hand of God shows up because they went. God rewarded them by killing all of Vegas with a nuke. And the apostles witnessing. I thought you were defending this ending, Arnie. It sounds like you have exactly the same problem I am. This is stupid. Well, I had a lot of problems with this initially. When this first aired, I turned it off thinking that Hand of God thing is stupid. I mean, talk about Deus Ex Machina. This is Nuke Ex Machina. And it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, this is right down to the Ark opening up and melting the Nazis kind of thing. So you're saying Spielberg ripped off King, because let's keep in mind this came first. I'm not saying anybody ripped off anybody. I'm saying that Mick Garris likes Raiders of the Lost Ark a lot and photographed <laughs> this to look like the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark. That hand of God is worse than any eagles in Tolkien's mythology. The hand of God is a little, pardon the pun, heavy-handed. <laughs> and I do wish that the characters were a bit more active beyond their faith being the conduit, but that's because I'm a bit more secular. Again, going back to what this movie is, though, and this was my first time, because I'm now in my 40s, and I'm facing the grave more than I'm facing my own birth, I am just finding myself more questioning matters beyond this world. So given what Mother Abigail says, given that this is about faith and God, is this not an appropriate ending? Is this not God destroying Sodom in the Bible? Is that not what this is a retelling of? Except I was told the first night that this was about man destroying himself with chemicals and with their own creation. I was not told to turn to the book of Judges in the Old Testament and follow along. I like that it went biblical. I actually don't have a problem with any of that. I think that that gives it a neat ramification. 
Uh, what I don't like is that, yeah, these people get out there and say, there's a better way to live, and boom, they all melt. Yeah, there is no convincing. There's One of the problems I have with this film, it seems like everyone has chosen either for good or for bad. I don't know how much free will there is. Well, it seems like there's none with the people in Vegas because you're going to be crucified if you do drugs. No, but a lot of them are talking about going to South America. I see the chance to save people here. And shouldn't that be, if this is a Christian message, wouldn't it be more satisfying if these guys that are strapped up to the wheels of fortune actually got the people that weren't so happy? You know, the one guy that pops up and says, we're Americans, we don't do this kind of thing. Like, if that had been successful, I think that that would have been more powerful than having Matt Frewer roll in here with the melted face and going, for you! But I like that it was Flag's own agent that undid him. I hate that. That's the way it's been going the whole time. You don't want the good guys to do one thing? No, I do definitely want the good guys to do something. And that's why I started by saying, if they hadn't come, would it have mattered? Because I'm like trying to think it through. If they hadn't come, the entire population of Vegas wouldn't have gathered at Glitter Gulch. But then again, it's an A-bomb. It, it would have reached out to Northern Vegas and Southern Vegas. It would have got them. Yeah, I, so that didn't really help. If they hadn't come, the bomb wouldn't have gone off. And then they would have eventually been nuked themselves because Randall Flagg would have had an A-bomb. Maybe. We really don't never know what Randall Flagg's plan is. So maybe. And I'm not sure he's dead either. The bomb goes off, but we do see him kind of turn into a crow again and flying maybe out of the blast radius. Hey, spoiler alert, he shows up in other King books. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> he is King's big bad. He's been writing about him since the 60s. Listen to my last week's Books and Nachos on King's poem. Hmm. You're really challenging me. I'm not going to read it, but I will listen to you talk about it. <laughs> but yeah, Randall Flagg shows up again in Eyes of the Dragon, a book that I'll probably get to in five years, and I remember not liking. And he's a major player in the Gunslinger series, so the Dark Tower series. So no, Flagg survived. And in the book, the unabridged version, it's very clear that he is reincarnated or reestablished or recorporalized in a different country about to start again, because that's in King's view what evil does. Evil can't be defeated, it can just be pushed back. Sure. I'm okay with that conception of evil. I liked Randall Flagg. I would like to see him continue. I'd be okay with a, a stand sequel. Maybe they'd actually do something in that. <laughs> More than literally stand. <laughs> Make yo stand! But the fact that they go there, the fact that this is a spiritual journey for them... It worked for me more this time than it ever has before. I get what you're saying, and those are the questions I came with. What does Stu matter to this plot? What do any of these who walk to Vegas matter to this plot? But in the end, it doesn't matter to the plot, but it matters to what I take away from it as King's message. I do wish that Randall Flagg wasn't already undone by the time they got there. I think that that's a mistake. And it, King goes on and on in interviews and all over the place about Evil destroys itself, that's what evil does. Okay, but that doesn't make for a good hero story. You know, in Lord of the Rings, the ring doesn't just eventually destroy itself and Sauron loses people. You know, Frodo has to do something there. There has to be a ring cast into fire. So I feel that moment is missing here. I do like the fact that they established the virus is gone. That has been the one thing that, that's been plaguing Franny is the fact that she could have this baby... And it may not be immune. She is, but it may not be, and it may die. And they even play with that a little. When Stu and Tom do eventually get back, and 
Stephen King is waiting for him, and at some other sentry, they tell him, the baby is sick with the plague, but then Mother Abigail's head floats above the nursery, and everything's fine. Yeah, and that Stu got back, I'm glad the human race is able to repopulate. I am. Sam got back to his wife. I mean, if they're doing Lord of the Rings parallel, somebody had to come back. Tom came back, too. He could have his mentally challenged babies with the ladies. Yeah, well, well, the baby's already impregnated. Lucy was already pregnant with Larry's baby, so there you go. There you are. So there is an heir. Yeah, he can be the kindly uncle. <laughs> Just don't teach the kids spell it. I do find it strange, like, there's this last line, like, can people change? I don't know, but maybe our child will know. Like, has that been the message? Like, because Glenn brought it up earlier, why are we turning the power on? Why are we getting involved with the old ways? I don't feel like that was a central message to this film, and all of a sudden it seems like that's what we're going to end on. Are we going to make the same mistakes again? Who knows, but our children can decide that. That is King's version of this message, is that technology, the way we have used it, is going to destroy us all. The nukes, the plagues, all of it. And so that the Boulder Free Zone was getting just back in their ways and turning the power back on is not what they should be doing. And Stu seeing that nuke is to come back and tell them, hey, the old way of life is not what we should be doing. We need to get back to basics. And that's what he's coming back to. Now, I don't see them turning away the NICU in the pediatric ward or something like that, but... Maybe a little less television? (laughs) It would have been nice to see that. Like, have that come full circle. Like, hey guys, I just saw an atom bomb blow up all the evil people. Maybe we should be more careful with what we're deciding to bring back from the old world. I don't have a problem with this being the way it ends. I I like the way it ends. I just have a problem with the way it's delivered. I mean, here Molly Ringwald just sucks a dog's dick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Kojak's happy though. I thought that was Nadine's job. She's supposed to be crying for everyone that's lost. And what, how power, yeah, we're reminded of how many people had to die to get to this birth. How amazing it is and how painful it is. And her performance in this, just deplorable. No wonder she doesn't have a career. (laughs) She was bad, yes. When they started playing the montage of all the dead people, my immediate reaction was, oh God, how sappy. But by midway through, I'm like, oh, they all died. It's true. And those were the characters that we got to know. I mean, just think about the millions of people on Earth <laughs> that are dead. I mean, all of us. Let's face it. We're probably not there in the free zone. I mean, I'm immune. I was probably shot down by the military because I was still podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're Kathy Bates in this. No doubt about it. You know what also doesn't help the sentimentality of this moment is the music, which is throughout this just deplorable. Amazing. A terrible, terrible score. Love the score. Bought the CD. Oh, terrible. Terrible. It's honestly like Howard Shore's Lord of the Rings score played on a guitar. It is absolutely nothing like that. (laughs) It's like they got a guy that does sentimental shows like I'll Fly Away and Wonder Years, and he didn't know he was doing an apocalyptic Stephen King movie. I can see all of your complaints thus far. But I cannot believe that you are ripping on Snuffy Walden's score here because this is so perfect for this kind of epic. This guitar music, the suspense stuff, I mean, he basically just went with bass tones. But the anthem that plays as those four guys walk to Vegas that plays it in the uncredits, I mean, keep in mind, I had to watch this thing twice, once with commentary, once regularly. 
I've been humming that theme. I love this theme. Snuffy blew it out of the water. I love the guitar work here. <laughs> he blew it all right. I was rolling my eyes every time I heard that guitar come up when they were walking. It's so, again, heavy-handed, like the Lonesome Journeyman. Come on. Yes, exactly. The Lonesome Journeyman. If the music conveyed that, the score did what it was supposed to. No, heavy-handedly. There's no, again, my problem with all this, there is no subtlety throughout this entire miniseries, which is a problem for me, and the music is an extension of that. Yeah, baby, I don't dig your shit. Sorry, Snuffy. You're wrong on that, but will you be right with this? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Stand? Jacob. Look, I, I gotta approach this as a 90s made-for-TV miniseries with the budget it has. I get what it's trying to do, but even then, I'm watching this, you know, as we're recording it, we're not doing six hours of recording as we get through this difficult, long, epic plot, because it's not that epic. It, it's not that difficult. There's a lot of time spent on things that, well, I think a better writer, which is weird. I know Stephen King did this teleplay, but maybe someone that understands film or TV better could have adapted this book where I just don't get all this extra stuff that doesn't really matter. Like, you know, example, again, Nadine, I don't understand why we spend so much time with her wanting to get boned by the Dark Man when nothing comes of that. I, I guess if we need another illustration of his undoing, which I don't understand why he's becoming unraveled by the end of this. It comes from a big book. I get that. This huge, thick, over a thousand pages. But I don't think I have a better sense of what's in that book after watching this because this feels so flimsy. It feels like there's not much going on in it. And so I'm watching this. Okay, I've watched the first episode. Do I go on to episode two? Yeah, I might. After that second episode, though, The Dreams, I wasn't compelled to go on, except I was because I'm doing now playing. But if I was a viewer, there wasn't enough meat to this. There wasn't enough, you know, moral conflict. Yeah, it's black and white, black versus white, good versus evil. But I just don't feel like any of the characters really struggle with their decisions. That's a problem for me. I just don't feel the story is, is very compelling. I'm looking forward to your books and nachos, though, Arnie, because I do want to learn more about the book because of the reputation has. But for this film, this miniseries, M-O-O-N, that spells not recommend. Stuart. You know, this is one of King's most terrifying scenarios. I think people confuse that with being his greatest book. I haven't read all of his books. I don't know. But I do feel like some of the problems that I'm having with this miniseries are inherent with the source material. He did have a, an incredible epic buildup. It was quite a thing to destroy the human race. But what do you do after? What is the encore to that? That is the trickier stuff. And I don't feel like King has it all worked out. He hasn't created an admirable cast. And like I said, I just sort of enjoyed this movie, three-fourths of it, just as a disaster movie. Like, okay, not all of these actors are good. Some of these special effects are pretty bad. But, you know, I'm still just enjoying watching the world end and seeing how it goes and watching B and C-level actors go through that turmoil. It's just the kind of fun you have when you watch a disaster movie. But then we hit that fourth night. And I'm sorry, something that bad, even with what Stephen King had written, and on the budget that they had, what Mick Garris does from a directing standpoint, when every scene is tear your hair out awful, when you're literally watching every scene groaning that you can't believe they're throwing it all away into the fires of Mordor. I mean, they screwed this up in the forced act. And I'm sorry, I was willing to give this a green arrow through all of its sins. I cannot forgive it. It's fourth hour. You can't end something this badly and have me recommend it. So I'm sorry. If I could stop it at night three, it would be a mild recommend. But that fourth night is atrocious, unforgivable. So mild not recommend. This isn't perfect by 
any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's recommendable. I think that of the stuff we're going to cover of King's TV works, it's probably the best. I know there are people out there who are like, I can't wait for you to get to it and review it. Well, I haven't rewatched it in quite a long time, but my memory is it's not very good and it's really poorly cast. I mean, Harry Anderson is a tragic figure. We'll get there eventually, but it's the stand that really stood out. The stand was a monumental thing that you had to watch. It, not the Langoliers, not Rose Red, not Golden Years. The stand was an event, and it, it had that epic feel because it was the death of the world. It's because of the stand that we got that atrocious shining from all the same people, where all of the problems here are just magnified a hundredfold. Well, not recommend based on that fact. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tempted. I am tempted <laughs> just because of the legacy this wrought. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing that's good about this movie is worth enduring kisses, kisses. That's what I've been missing. <laughs> but I think there's some great performances here. You singled out the bad ones, Stuart. But I'm going to take a moment and do my own little montage here at the end to call out the good ones. We've talked about Gary Sinise, who I thought did really good. Ruby D. We didn't talk about her much. I love her as Mother Abigail. I think she did a really wonderful job in a role of a stereotypical, magical old black woman that could have gone really poorly. I really like her in this, as well as her husband, Ozzie Davis, Miguel Ferrer, Matt Frewer, Ray Walston, Rob Lowe, who didn't go over the top with his motions and at no point felt like he was doing a silent film Shawnee Smith, who at first I thought was terrible, and then I realized that's just what she's going for, and I ended up really liking that craziness she brought. I'll side with that. Yeah, she won me over. I feel like what you're saying with great performances, they're amusing. Because, yes, a lot of these were amusing. I don't know if great's the right word, like Shawnee Smith. Well, okay, <laughs> perhaps not great for Shawnee Smith. But these are performances I enjoyed and that brought me in. There are some pretty bad ones. I'm looking at you, Parker Lewis. Parker Lewis can lose very badly. <laughs> and the first night is so powerful. I don't care what comes after it. With that first night, it's a recommend. Now, how strong of a recommend? It's a weaker recommend. <laughs> it does get worse. The first night, it's a home run. It is perfect. Yeah, I'm with you. The second night keeps going pretty good. It's not as good. It starts to get a little bit more muddied, but it goes pretty good. Not a lot happens, but yeah, I'm with you. It's the traveling section. I mean, yeah. The third night does tread water, but then it ends on a very exciting and tragic note with the death of Nick. You said it had a good 20 minutes out of 90. Yep. Yeah, I, I'm with you on all of this so far, Ernie. I'm waiting to hear what you have to say about this final night. Well, okay, but if I've got a great night, a pretty good night, and a man night, that's still recommend. <laughs> Unless it's night four. <laughs> With Night 4, I liked it because something was happening. It was the showdown. I felt the tension. I was with those four men, all four of whom, you know, I didn't love Larry's performance early on, but I said he got better. By Night 4, I felt like I was walking with those four men to this stand. I wish they'd done more when they got there, but I liked their journey. I liked their talk. This is a drama more than an action episode, and the drama got me. I... Even like the extended denouement of Tom and Stu trying to get back to Boulder and having to break out the snowcat. I thought they might be prepping for The Shining. Oh, look, we already have the snowcat. 
There are some faults with this ending in my mind, and they're straight from the book. Hand of God? Instead of a character actually doing something? All the good guys die who made it to Vegas? I mean, there's choices I questioned by King. I'll spoil a little bit of my books and nachos. I know a lot of people think this is King's best book. I do not. I still am standing by of the stuff I've reviewed thus far, The Shining. I think this is a very good book, though, and I think this ending brings to a close the spiritual aspects of this story. Yes, if you're looking for an action-adventure hero's journey, this ending is totally not what you want. It's Heroes Interruptus. But for the story that was being told, and this time watching it, I was really looking for the seeds being planted that lead to this end, and they're there. They're cold seeds, just like the Dark Man's. <laughs> yes, they're cold, they're lonely, but they're there. And while I wish something more active because of the viewer I am and the entertainment I enjoy, I wish it was something other than the hand of God killing everybody. I still like the mood and the tone and the performances of this fourth act, especially once they kill that damn... I mean, they kill the bad ones. Laura Sangiacomo flies off a roof. Corin Nemec flies off a guardrail. And props to that stuntman who looks nothing like Corin Nemec, but who really went through a lot of air. I think that was a great stunt. So I'm going to give this a recommend. I think it's worth watching. I think it's worth the six-hour investment of watching. But it's eight hours. It's eight hours on network TV. It's six hours on DVD. Oh, okay. There's two hours of commercials in there. There's only one commercial in here, and it's for Flu Buddy, which I actually kind of chuckled at. Me too. I was hoping they're going to go RoboCop on it and have funny commercials, but I guess when the world ends, you got to stop doing commercials. Yeah, there were still some billboards, like Baby Can You Dig Your Man. There were some Flu Buddy references the rest of the time. And it's also a who's who. I mean, we didn't even mention John Landis and some of the other people who appeared in this, Tom Holland, but no. This is the best Stephen King TV movie, and hell, it's the only adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand, which is a story I think everyone should know. Now, Jacob, you're probably going to be disappointed, because I think this is a fairly decent representation of the book. Yeah, that's not turning me on to the book. No. That is a disappointment. But I like the book, and I think everyone should experience the book, and if you're not going to read either the 900-page abridged version or the 1,200-page unabridged version, then watch this movie. At least understand what it's about, and hear the wonderful use of Blue Oyster Cult, and for once in your life, not think you need more cowbell, and instead just be weirded out by the eeriness of that song and take it back to what it used to be. <laughs> and I'll, I'll second that. I like the book, too. Even with my misgivings about his ending, which is King just didn't know what to do once he set up the chessboard, but I still think the book is worth going through. And yeah, it's long, but I, I enjoyed it. Uh, this movie as a souvenir, it's pretty faithful, but come on, there'll be a reboot. We know that they've been working hard. The latest, the version that I've heard that's been kicking around now is the guy that did Fault in Our Stars actually wants to launch it. And I like that movie. I think he's a good out-of-the-box choice. Yeah, he's the one who I think is pitching for McConaughey to play Randall Flagg. I don't think this can be one movie. I don't think you can condense it down to be one movie. And I think it will be much like this. I think they'll be true to the books. I think there'll be more free zone committee than we want. I think there'll be hand of God at the end. So if you guys didn't like those plot points, I don't see that changing. What I see changing is adding a zero to the budget and doing it better, doing it more professionally, doing it more violently. Less Ringwald? I'm down. I think that, yes, if we had had the script that we had with higher production values, better performances, a better director at the helm, 
Yeah, I think I would give it a recommend. I'm looking forward to it. I hope it comes in our lifetime before the super flu kills us all. I mean, keep in mind, it took 15 years for this book to get to any screen, and it's been 20 years since this was done. Will we eventually see a multi-film The Stand come to theaters? I think so because this is how movies are going. They're going more serialized. I think one of the biggest problems is how the hell do you make this a movie and still keep it true to this book? Now, I don't think they need to. Shit, if we could turn The Hobbit into three movies, let's make The Stand into nine. I mean, something like that. But if they get the right cast, the right director, the right budget, I'd be down. I mean, I think it could work and I'm hopeful that it really does happen, but we'll see. If it does, now playing will be there. Yeah, I look forward to it as well. I think it's inevitable. I'm also looking forward to our next King. You said that Shining is your favorite book out of all the ones that we've covered. I'll go ahead and spoil it. I just finished reading The Dead Zone, and I think that's my favorite King so far, and that'll be the next one we cover early next year. Meanwhile, next week, let's get into some more true horror. This is not horror. This was sci-fi spiritual. Next week, Stuart, you, Marjorie, and I are finally going to do our long-promised review of 1980's Maniac. That's right. Yeah, it's a little makeup. I'm glad it's finally happening. I'm kind of a fan of this creepy little movie and its remake, which has a novel little gimmick and a novel little hobbit in it as well. We'll be doing Maniac 2012 after that, all tying into the fact that starting next week, we're getting back to The Hobbit. We're getting back to Tolkien and Peter Jackson for our silver level and platinum level donors. Yes, you can hear all of our reviews right now. I mean, we've been plugging the platinum level the past few weeks with the animated series where we did all three animated versions of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And then silver level or platinum level donors have heard the Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson trilogy reviewed and... If you donate right now a silver level donation of $15 or more, you'll get those three Lord of the Rings reviews, and then each week, a Hobbit review leading up to the Battle of the Five Armies hitting theaters very soon. If you go platinum, $30 or more, you'll also get the three animated reviews, plus seven more reviews, the Leprechaun series. So all those horror comedy hoodie origin films if horror is your thing maybe you just want the leprechaun films well that's a gold donation of 15 dollars or more and your donation really helps support our show and helps us keep doing what we're doing this is a lot of work reading the stand three times is a hell of a lot of work but you guys show us you appreciate what we do through your donations and so we are more than willing to put in this work to keep bringing you the best show we can yeah it is greatly appreciated all your donations, all the help you give us to keep the show going. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me as we made our stand. Did you enjoy that, Harold? Yes. <laughs> but it couldn't have done much for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. You've done it, Nick. You brought him through. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You've done good, boy.
Come on hear a full review of the original Stephen King source material at our sister podcast, booksandnachos.com. There, Arnie is reviewing every book and short story by King. Harold, I'm going to read this just as soon as I get a chance. Thanks. In the meantime, congratulations. And also, come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another new movie review. You're all welcome here. Now come on in. Let us visit a spell. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. You come see me, Nick. You and all your friends. You got to hurry, though. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. You talk about this thing in here like you were outside of it. I just wanted you to get a little taste of what it's like on the inside. How'd you like it? Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. <laughs> All that wisdom and I ain't rich yet. <laughs> You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I'll run it for you! For you! Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Hey, Dean. What? We're damned. Yes. I know. Now playing Credit Narration by Brock. I can hear! I can talk! The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. Hey, Bluto, you ever heard of a little number called Freedom of Speech? Bill of Rights? Any of that ring a bell? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Let's just say I'm from Missouri, and I don't always take the word of people I just met as gospel. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Enganza Media Incorporated. This is what God wants of you. Be true. Stay. Nadine returned and tried to hook up with Larry, but the musician ended up married to Lucy Swan and her feral adopted son, Joe. That came out wrong. He didn't marry Joe. <laughs> Making me really wonder right now that if the plague hit us, would we all be singing Taylor Swift's Shake It Off for the rest of eternity? You almost said Taylor Shits. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been. I, yeah, accurate. <laughs> Here they're kind of going biblical. Um, now I have to look at my Bible notes. Moses? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oops. 
You forget Sue, the seventh member of the council who blows up. <laughs> you mean Mick Garris's wife? Yeah, I know that yes. she's in there. Who has to use her sexuality to spy? No, 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 no. Sue. Oh, not no. oh, okay. Oh, 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 Sue, yeah, Sue, you Sue. See, there, okay. There's a lot of characters in this. Yeah, fuck. The one with the I... feral kid? No, Sue. Ah, oh, fuck it. You Move just on. ignored Sue, and uh, who can blame you? Yeah. <laughs> And so Nadine goes and hooks up with Harold, who gets more pissy after a blowjob. I find men are usually less pissy after... <laughs> I... <laughs> that came out like I was giving a lot of blowjobs. <laughs> when it just ends up with her committing suicide, like, your seat is cold. You don't have hot, warm man chowder to fill me up with, like... <laughs> Oh my god, did you say man chowder? Yes. (laughs) I did like that moment. It was sweet. Okay, guys, I just want to let you know something really dramatic is happening in my apartment. And I, let's see if it's going to abate. What, define dramatic? Now I'm just curious. Well, we, uh, Dishes being thrown? Yeah, something like that. Oh, okay. I'm listening. I don't know. And I'm afraid to go out. (laughs) Can you ask him to quiet down, please? No. No. <laughs> Actually, that would be funny for us. <laughs> oh yeah, great blooper for you, black eye for me. <laughs> Ooh, I just Yeah, I can hear it. I got to turn up my volume. It may not be in the apartment, it may be outside. Hold on. <laughs> He's daring to poke his head out. Let's see Randall flag with the full horns. <laughs> Okay. Is it in your apartment? It is, uh, yeah, the lower apartment outside my window, and she just kicked him out, and he went into the guest house. So I think we're fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. She's not going to let go. Yeah, I heard that. I know you're lying. (laughs) What did you think of the stand? (laughs) I agree, this ending is infuriating. Whoa, that was loud. Yeah, no, there's there's no way we can do the show either if she's going to continue to do this. Or I can't speak. <laughs> if you're going to not recommend it, that's Can I write it on the pad like Nick and maybe someone else can say it? Yes, the rest of it, do it as Nick. <laughs> okay, we're going to go. Hurry. Yeah, exactly. Uh, not recommend, the end. <laughs> Because I'm now in my 40s, and I'm facing the grave more than I'm facing my own birth, I am just finding myself more questioning matters beyond this world, and... <laughs> what the fuck was that? Go on, I'm just, I'm just giving the backdrop that I feel is appropriate. <laughs> You're just distracting the shit out of me. <laughs> there are some pretty bad ones. I'm looking at you, Parker Lewis. Parker Lewis can lose very badly. <laughs> Although I wouldn't say that to his face. I saw him at a con recently. Boy's jacked. He beefed up for Stargate. He hanging out with Carrot Top? 
Actually, he's hanging out with Bud Bundy from Married with Children. Like, the two of them are good friends. Bud Bundy was at the con not as a guest, but just hanging out with Corn Nemec. He wasn't DJing? I know that's his gig now. Oh, no, I I didn't. I hear he's going to be on a Married with Children spinoff playing the father. But anyway, to the stand. And I'll I'll second that. I like the book, too. Even with my... uh, God, she's really breaking shit up. <laughs> Is she smashing things? Yeah, something went out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need to call the cops? Is this a uh, yeah? Is this a domestic abuse? Let's, let's hurry through this. <laughs> um, 